I'm Captain Gulk. I suppose you two have a few questions. is over we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps talking about season four it's the feedback show oh my goodness i'm josh wiggler mike bloom we finished season four this is the feedback show i can't even believe it another season in the books i feel like season three was yesterday mike i mean it kind of was though season four we only recorded for 13 weeks that's like half of the time it took us to record season one yeah yeah so we really breezed through it that's because it's a breezy season obviously not an easy season for the characters but it is certainly a beautiful cover girl of a season yes easy breezy beautiful lost season four Uh, (laughs) it doesn't flow as well it doesn't quite but it actually it's not so bad anyway we're here uh we are here to do what the what the name of this episode tells you. It's the feedback show. This is the one that's driven by your feedback. We have so much feedback. The great Ben behind the curtain and Brendan Fitzpatrick collated all of your feedback, put it into one handy-dandy document, sent it to Mike and I, and now we are going to go through all of it as we officially close the book on season four once and for all, Mike. Yeah, so suffice it to say, an inordinate amount of feedback, not particularly because of the season itself, though, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in season four. But due to our recording schedule, things were a little out of sorts. There was a time displacement in true season four fashion between our recording and between the release. And we are happy to announce that that is no longer going to be the case starting with season five on Down the Hash. Despite the time travel shenanigans that are going to ensue, we are going to stay firmly anchored in time we do appreciate everyone's patience as well i know that everyone's routine or a lot of people's routines likes to be okay i listen to the podcast and then i watch the episode or i watch the episode right before the podcast comes out obviously that was not conducive to our recording schedule in season four but season five we are back into the normal swing of things yes uh of course uh it would it would appear mike that i I uh, like gave like a solid 50% of our listenership a heart attack last week uh, <laughs> yeah. due to uh, the announcement at the start. Yeah, we, we even got podcast. like out vo- not even emails, but voice recordings contained within said emails. Yeah, uh, uh, about, people being about like, this, the fright. Uh, people who, who had reached out to me and were like, Wiggler, I thought you were saying that because of the job, you can't do the podcast anymore. Oh, my God, I was freaking out. Uh, not intended, certainly not the very nervous recording that message, but no, the, the message is, is that I am, uh, I'm going full time on the podcast. So if anything, right. you're getting it's more of me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was very, it was very fun, uh, to, to get some of those messages. And of course, part of that message was imploring you to consider signing up for the Patreon to support post show recaps. Uh, now is the time. Uh, now would be the best time to, to sign up. Not only that, because it is the end of the month uh, as we are dropping this podcast. Uh, the podcast, of course, comes out 
on Fridays. We'll talk about that in a second. April 30th, uh, as the Season 4 Feedback Show is dropping in the Down the Hatch feed. You go on May 1st, you go to patreon.com slash recaps. It's the start of the month. It's the perfect time to sign up. Uh, and last week, we talked about, you know, some of the reasons why it's a great idea. We've always talked about the fact that, of course, there's the Discord, there's all the bonus podcasts that you're getting, but you could also just do it because it's the noble thing to do. You want to support Mike. You want to support me. You want to support your favorite post-show recaps podcasters. Well, if that's not good enough, and you do need something that is a little bit more tangible, how about this? Um, we are doing something that a lot of uh, podcasts that are hooked up with, uh, with Patreon do. Uh, I'm really excited about this move. We are, Mike, moving into the time travel season mm-hmm. as we are going into season five. So how about some like light time travel? Certainly not <laughs> as harsh as the time travel that uh, that occurred over the yeah, course some, of our season four. Some mild time travel. We're not going too high on the Scoville scale here. No, far from it. Um, we are going to be releasing episodes of Down the Hatch early for the patrons of Post Show Recap. So what that means is Mike Bloom and I are going to be recording the podcast on Tuesdays moving forward. We are going to release the episodes on Wednesdays for the patrons of Post Show Recaps in the patron feed early access episode. And then on Friday, we are going to be uh, publishing the podcasts in the Down the Hatch feed as per usual. So if you sign up for the Patreon, you get Down the Hatch two days early. You get to get that Wednesday hit, uh, the early access on Down the Hatch. If that sounds fun to you, if that sounds interesting, enticing to you, we recommend you look into it. You're going to get that early drop beginning with this episode. This one came early into the into the patron podcast feed slightly later uh, than things are normally going to be dropping. Um, but that is the plan moving forward. Early access for Down the Hatch for the patrons of Post Show Recaps to thank them for their incredible support of the podcast, Mike. Yeah. And listen, if you do not have the means to become a patron, that is absolutely fine. You are still going to get Down the Hatch no matter what in your feeds on Friday. But if you have the means to contribute and the idea of listening to Down the Hatch two days earlier incentivizes you. Uh, I know that new girl old guy likes to call itself a Friday podcast rather than a Wednesday podcast when it drops. Maybe for patrons, Down the Hatch will become a Wednesday podcast rather than a Friday podcast. So we're continually trying stuff out. So, you know, if, if you'd like to become a patron, this might be another incentive to do so. Otherwise, we are staying on the complete same schedule as we are always going to be with podcasts coming out on Fridays no matter what. But Josh, we're going to wait just a little bit longer to get into season five proper. Yes. Uh, so we are going to do a bonus podcast. In fact, again, more time travel shenanigans. Mike Bloom and I have actually already recorded the bonus episode of Down the Hatch that's going to be coming out next week in that usual Friday spot. We're going to have a bonus episode between seasons four and five. So this is the feedback show dropping April 30th. On May 7th, we've got a bonus episode of Down the Hatch. On May 14th, that's when we're going to do 501, the season five premiere. Um, and let's just tell you what that bonus episode is. It's the return of The Lost RPG, uh, a, a series of ridiculous podcasts we have done here on Down the Hatch, but have not done in a long time. It's been about a year, a little bit more that a year since the last episode of The Lost RPG in which myself and Mike Bloom 
play characters from the background of the Oceanic 815 survivors <laughs> named Billy Wallace and Rodney Sesto. Just a couple of a-holes, as the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy would call them. And they're quite literally so. These are uh, narcissistic murderers. <laughs> they're terrible people. They've killed people. They're really just concerned about their, you know, restoring their former glory uh, as they're both uh, former actors of differing varieties. <laughs> uh, and uh, they've gotten messed up and mixed up in all sorts of ridiculous things that have happened on the island. So with the assistance of the incredible Rich Filiberto, a.k.a. R. Philly on these mean internet streets, who is one of the incredible dungeon masters responsible for our Dungeons and Dragons campaign in the Poster Recaps patron discord, which you can become involved in. You can play D&D with Mike Bloom and myself and many of your other favorite podcasters and many of your uh, soon to be favorite friends. If you become a patron because the patrons are so cool, uh, he joined us for the Return of the Lost RPG. That's going to be coming out next week. Coming out next weekend uh on may 7th and then after that we will be full steam ahead in to season five mike yeah but first we got it we got a little bit of loose ends to tie up josh in fact many many loose ends uh, much like season four did proper moved to freaking island we have moved all basically an island's worth of feedback to us to talk about overall thoughts on season four, uh, you know, catching up with some of the feedback you all had in response to our episodic coverage that we did. And then maybe some season four extracurriculars along the way, in addition to, of course, reviewing the MVPs, LVPs, uh, looking at the overall scores for season four and how it compares to the rest. This is this is going to be a jam packed feedback show for Down the Hatch, maybe our longest one yet. Uh, we'll see. Let's not. We, we've no idea what the, you know. We'll get into the timing of everything very quickly here, in fact. Uh, but before we get into anything any further, I want to take a, take a quick second to thank our sponsors for this episode of Down the Hatch. Those are our friends over at Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Mike Bloom, we're going to hop in to all of this lovely Season 4 feedback. But first, just how are you feeling about the fact that we've got four out of six seasons in the books? That's uh, yeah. a, a crazy stat to me right now. It's an odd stat. I mean, from from a pure numbers perspective, we are two thirds of the way through. Even though, again, this was a a little bit of a shorter season, especially in comparison to some of those earlier seasons. I mean, I am so bittersweet to have gone through season four. I have expounded on my love for season four ever since we started down the hatch. My love is no different for season four. Season four is a weird season of Lost in every sense of the word. They're definitely trying new things. We're bringing in a slew of new characters that have their own quirks. This is not like your typical Juliet who has some baggage. We're bringing in a man who is, you know, is obsessed with time travel and a guy that can talk to ghosts. You know, it definitely feels like Lost season four. If we're talking about that, that, old adage we always go back to of season three closing one book of lost we are truly deviating lost into a more occult mystic and uh sci-fi part 
of the series. We're really going to get that fleshed out in season five. But I think it's actually really pertinent that we start the season with an episode that introduces us to the fact that Hurley can now talk to ghosts. And we end the season with the island disappearing. Yeah. These are two things that I think if you watched the first episode, maybe even season one, and I told you these two things would happen, you'd say you are absolutely positively out of your mind. And we're not even at the end of the series, and we're already doing this stuff. So I feel like season four was such a distinct turn for the series, but it also has such incredible stuff in it as well. Yeah, 100%. I think that this is uh, a great way to leverage us into our first question for the feedback show, our first bit of feedback, which comes our way courtesy of Mike Christensen. Um, Mike wrote in and said, talking to a friend tonight, I mentioned that I'd spent the day binge watching season four of Lost, to which he responded, why? That's when it started going downhill. I didn't watch the show in real time, so I don't know how widespread that sentiment was. But based on the tonal shift we see from season four and onward, I can see that being a not uncommon view among quote unquote normies. I'd be interested in a discussion on how the shift we see here, as you described going into the second half of Lost, impacted the show from the viewpoint of the wider audience. Um, I mean, I've talked about this a little bit myself, Mike, that, you know, for me, those first three seasons are the glory period of Lost. That's when I'm, you know, in college, I'm watching it with my friends. I've got my people. I've got like, my like Mr. Echo style church that I'm going to every Wednesday oh, that night finally gets built and, and, and uh, instead of Mr. Echo's church, which never ends up, you know, finishing. Yeah, we had Starbucks as well. So it really all connects uh, <laughs> that like I think like I lost something of a semblance of, of that community for season four. So sometimes like the newcomers on Lost from season four and onward. They, they land differently for me from time to time. Um, like sometimes I'm really into the freighters and, and sometimes I'm not. Um, sometimes I'm really into the characters we meet in the time travel season. Sometimes I'm not. I'm basically never into the characters that we meet in the final season of the show. Maybe that'll change <laughs> during Down the Hatch. Um, but I think for me, my, my viewpoint on this is just like so inextricably subjective uh, that I right. don't know that I can get objective uh, regarding this question from Mike. I mean, if we're looking at let's let's look at quantitative, you know, perspectives on this, because even looking at the ratings, I'm looking at them right now. They're not too much of a fall from season three. Like, of course, with any TV show, really, even those back in the heyday of broadcast television in the mid 2000s, numbers are going to fall pretty much each and every season. But I would say some of the lowest, lowest rated episodes of season four were actually pretty consistent with some of the lowest rated episodes of season three. The highs weren't as high, but I would not say that there was like from a pure mass exodus perspective, a severe drop off in viewership. What it might be more so is just a, you know, a, a whole, a whole accumu accumulation of factors. The idea that to, to Mike's point, maybe the show does take a different turn. This is really no longer about people stranded on an island. In fact, an entire narrative storyline this season is going to focus on people not being on said island. So it definitely deviates from that main plot point. But I think the writer's strike definitely had something to do with it. You know, I, I think there's just something 
weird that year about, oh, I guess you're going to have to wait for February for Lost to come back. You know, there's almost something ritualistic about television, especially back in those days when you would pretty much guarantee, okay, September to December, and then like January through May. That's the way that TV is always going to run. To have this be a little bit different, to have it be a shorter season, and for it to be a little more, I think, creatively stretchy than, especially in plot, than the first three seasons may have contributed to people saying, all right, this is not the show I signed up for. It's time to leave. I don't I would I would not say though that this was such a hard and fast about face. This to me is more so like a Rolling Stone gathering moss that maybe began all the way back in the hatch. We talked about this in our in our, uh, our Man of Science Man of Faith podcast just how redonkulous it is that oh yeah there's a guy living with all these modern luxuries quote-unquote modern luxuries on this tropical island right that sort of is like one step in the direction of how much the show grows from its initial idea and maybe season four just looking at its skeleton and the things that happen represents all those little steps in the seasons that came prior to it yeah i think that that's probably right i mean once you go down the hatch Literally uh, on the show, uh, you're now in science fiction territory in a really firm way. Um, And that really just builds. I mean, season three is already dealing with elements of time travel via the Desmond storyline and his ability to see glimpses into the future. Um, I would also challenge the notion, though, that season four is where the show uh, goes downhill from a popular lens uh, because this is the season that contains what appears to be, if not the consensus best episode of Lost, then very close to it in the constant. Um, you know, and granted, that's in the first half of season four, but season four is so short that you're still in the tank. Um, I think that like where the worm really, really starts to turn is probably the season we're about to start getting into. Yeah. I, I think so as well, because that's when we're really taking a big step. We're no longer doing the flash forwards and flashbacks. We're now sort of doing this dual narrative perspective. Now there's straight up time travel going on. Like you said, it had been hinted at before, but once that wheel turns... Now everybody's doing it. Exactly. And uh. so I think, you know, that's when perhaps it, it sort of goes into, I wouldn't say the uncanny valley necessarily, because again, this is an episode, a show that featured a polar bear on a tropical island in its first ever episode. But I do think that using it as like a large plot point definitely feels like a bigger step. Yeah, for sure. Um, from the great Dallin Servo, who reports that we are currently at 197 utterances of the word dude. Wow, almost 200 dudes in four seasons. Yeah, I'm actually a little surprised it's that few. I feel I feel like uh, I would have expected we would have crossed 200 dudes by the end of season four. So close. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess if you think about we've, we have only had a, a handful of Hurley-centric episodes where I imagine the dude would come out more. Otherwise, it's been a pretty sparing use of Hurley. He certainly has not faded into the background but i feel like they used to, they use him pretty well in a, a supporting role no matter what maybe they also practice some restraint as well right they don't want him to essentially by season five turn into dude 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 uh which would definitely add to the count so maybe there's just a, a little bit of conservative nature going on since they have an end game in mind for hurley yeah we're in the end game now Dowen writes in and asks with the whole season considered what's the biggest thing that's affected by the writer's strike for me, this is very easy. This is yeah. Michael. It's Michael. Yep. The answer is Michael. It's, it's become abundantly clear. They had more to do here. It. They brought him back. I think they felt like they had more time to do a nuanced story with Michael. They did not. 
Uh, the writer strike that goes down, I think, really very clearly, severely, badly impacts Michael as a character. I think worse than basically anybody. Uh, and I don't think it's particularly close. Yeah, because you have to remember that episodes one through seven, we get this almost excruciating tease. Who's Ben's guy on the boat? Who's this spy? And then we finally get the reveal that it's Michael. He gets his standalone episode, basically, where he gets caught and outed by Saeed. And then the writer's strike happens. And so, you know, you'd imagine that if there was a second half of this season, episodes 9 through 16, they would really build out, okay, what's happening to Michael? You know, uh, how is he going to gain this, uh, come into this role, basically, from prisoner to hero at the end of it? Instead, we kind of just have to squeeze it in where we have a couple scenes of what him being chained up, Kimi beating him up, and then Frank going to free him. And then we have everything in the finale. So they really had so much Michael that they wanted to use. But just due to pure real estate of episodes that were left, they couldn't do anything with it. I completely agree. While there's an arc still there, it feels like an arc that had several parts of the middle cut out of it. Yeah, it's just missing stuff. Um, because like, I, I, obviously the biggest thing affected is that like literal episodes are removed, right? Like there are ep- not yeah. like, you know, that they're like removed in terms of they wrote them and they shot them and then they didn't air them, but like they had episodes that they were going to make. Uh, they had like the ability to make a few more episodes that was taken away from them by the circumstances. Um, that is, is less of an issue for me, uh, in the grand scheme of things, because I think that season four does still have this, like, if anything, an increased propulsive quality because it's a shorter season feels almost more like a modern season of television, uh, because, uh, seasons tend to be like no more than like, I don't know, 13 episodes or so at this point. Um, the biggest issue is that like Michael just gets severely undercut as a result of this. I think that that is so much of a, of a, that's so much of a greater tragedy to me than the missing episodes is the missing Michael pieces. Uh, well, I think the, I think the problem was that Lost has this ballooning ensemble cast and they've done a, you know in the first three seasons they want to give everyone their due in a manner of speaking and while i agree that it, it does at least have the benefit of them saying we got to go balls to the wall let's kill alex right now and not look back it comes at the expense of oh crap you know they're in a hot air balloon a la henry gale and they're saying i guess we have to cut some sandbags right now so we can rise through this storm Bye-bye, Michael storyline. Bye-bye, possible Claire storyline. Uh, you know, those types of things, unfortunately, had to fall by the wayside in order to just get to where they needed to go by the end of it, because they only had so many minutes. That's the other thing as well. They, they were not uh, a Netflix show or an HBO show where the minutes could be variable. There was a constant. They had to do 42-minute episodes. And with the exception of the uh, There's No Place Like Home, where they basically had to beg for another hour, they were restricted to containing all of these plot lines now into these pages. And unfortunately, some things had to get cut. Now, in the spirit of we only had so many minutes, let's go to this next bit of feedback from the great Spencer Y. Spencer writes in and says, Podcast failure. Podcast failure. It's, oh my god, I haven't heard that, that sound uh, in about a year and a half. <laughs> it's time to dust off and spin that frozen donkey wheel, says Spencer. It's especially fitting since the season 4 finale was just recapped. You guys owe listeners another podcast. Josh and Mike are always so full of jokes and divergences that it seems inconceivable, practically impossible. 
that they could ever have a down the hatch podcast that failed to meet the 108 minute, i.e. one hour and 48 minutes threshold, uh, excluding multiple commercial breaks within the podcast. But it did happen for the other woman. All Josh and Mike had to do was rant and rave about Ben Linus being an incel or filibuster about nonsense for another 100 seconds to hit the 108 minute mark and barely avoid the violation. Keep up the great work, but always remember that breaking the rules has consequences. Now spin that wheel. For those who don't recall, uh, in the early days, in the earliest days of Down the Hatch, Mike and when I... We were, when we were deluded. When we were but uh, wee babes, uh, young turnip heads ourselves, uh, we had this thought that we would never go past 108 minutes for any given podcast there would be consequences we would spin uh, a, a veritable donkey wheel of options and if we exceeded 108 minutes we would owe the listeners of down the hatch a bonus podcast based on that wheel very quickly it became apparent that that was not going to be all right and the podcast would be unsustainable so we killed that idea and just decided let's just do the podcast however long we want uh, i think everybody has been happy for that certainly mike and i have been happy for that <laughs> i think then we instituted the rule that if we ever uh did not if we ever went underneath uh 108 minutes we would spin the donkey wheel uh and owe you a bonus podcast thinking that that would never happen but according to spencer it's happened i guess it's a good thing mike that we recorded the lost rpg episode because i'm totally going to count that as the bonus yeah. podcast no uh, no it's sorry i gotta live my life here spencer <laughs> no we, we, we knew that all along we yeah. were like ben linus yeah, right yeah, we, yeah. we always have a plan. chessboard yeah, we, so we, we had this prepared in advance it's ready to go it's actually been in the hopper for about uh, a year and a half so apologies if we make references to mm. you know all the great <laughs> marvel movies that are coming out in 2020 you're gonna seem real old and it's gonna seem awkward uh, I will say, so the Lost RPG episode is coming next week. Uh, if, if that's not your thing, you could totally skip it 100%. Also, it's just, it's, uh, a lot goes on. It's, it's, <laughs> so much happens. A lot, a lot happens. A lot happens in the Lost RPG episode. <laughs> Remember that we're playing characters who are terrible people. We apologize, uh, it's, it's, it's in advance for their terrible behavior. I mean, it's very akin to Lost Season 4, and I feel like the first time we, we did it... Listen it was, with caution. <laughs> it, was, it was very much straightforward, and now we sort of, like, have devolved... I think devolved is the c- correct word, to just, like, it is off the rails. There are no rails in sight with the podcast We're very, up, like, so. purely following the lines of the characters, which are, they're just, like, b- they're both, like, they're idiots and they're terrible. And so, yeah, like, a lethal combination. You know, sort of like the Beavis and Butthead of uh, of the Lost Island. But I think Beavis and Butthead were probably uh, uh, better human beings uh, than than Billy and Rodney. So uh, listen to it at your own peril. It gets intense. Gets intense. Uh, things things go down. Literally, they're intense. That's where they live. Uh, well, no spoilers. Um, all right. Uh, this is from uh, the Ben behind the curtain himself, the great Ben Martell. Writes in, uh, talking, uh, we're going now through this, uh, somewhat episodically. Uh, I don't think we've, I don't think we've got feedback for every single episode, but we've got feedback for a bunch of them. This is, uh, this, will, this will be a good memory test for us because remember with the weird ass way we, re- we recorded the first half of this, we talked about these episodes, what, like long time three, ago, three, three months ago, long time ago. Um, so Ben writes in, uh, about the beginning of the end, uh, asking why did Hurley apologize? Ben says, even after watching through the season, Still not sure why Hurley apologized to Jack for going with Locke. What did Hurley have to apologize for? He may have ultimately made the wrong decision, but he made it for the right reason because Charlie's warning proved to be correct. Yeah, but do you think that uh, Hurley's apology to Jack 
makes much sense of like, I should have gone with you. Is it maybe because like if he had gone with Locke, everyone wouldn't be separated to begin with. They would have gotten Saeed. Everyone like consensus would have gotten Saeed onto the to the freighter. Mm. Saeed would have just like uh, like solid snaked his way through the freighter and gotten everybody home to safety. Would things have just been cleaner if they had all stuck together? Is that the problem? That and I also wonder if this apology is I know that uh, in the real world, this is sort of a nothing burger apology. But I wonder if this is sort of a I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings type of apology where it's less so, oh, I was wrong and more so, yeah, I definitely shouldn't have gone with Locke. Yeah. Locke has gone off the deep end. He keeps having us look for this cabin. I shouldn't have said anything about it. I'm sorry, Jack. You know, I, I'm going to go with you. I, remember, at this moment, he still wants to leave the island. Uh, you know, Hurley, Charlie's warning does prove correct, but Hurley does want to go with Jack, even though he's with Locke at that moment. So I wonder if that's an apology of, yeah, I should have picked you in the first place, because at the end of the day, I do still want to do what you want to do. Yeah, interesting. Um, this is from Snorri Jonsson, who who writes in and says, I've been wondering about the ghosts that appear in the show that are not Man in Black related, such as the ghost of Charlie that Hurley talks to in the beginning of the end, whether they're actually related to the Flash sideways, perhaps. I think uh, what makes the most sense is that these ghosts are from the place people go after the Flash sideways. Interesting. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, wait, so is there, wait, there's like a series of progressive waiting rooms? <laughs> yeah, continuing onward, I recently watched Abiturno and in the scene where Hurley sees Richard's wife and is communicating to him for her, Richard says how much he misses her and wishes he could be with her. She then says, we're already together. So she's coming from the place beyond the flash sideways where her and Richard have already been reunited after Richard dies in the future since the place after death has no time man i'm uh you're gonna have to just give me a quick second i just need to dab my nose the time travel uh nosebleeds are already beginning oh no allow me to dig in because now we're doing like time traveling ghosts it's a lot yeah i mean i guess it could be this idea right where you almost exist in a plane outside of time in the afterlife where you'll you'll be able to go back in time and and you know warn others but that feels a little bit like mixing the metaphysical with the sci-fi a bit too much. I feel like if we have more examples of that happening, I'd be keen on it. Because we know that, again, if, if Hurley is indeed talking to ghosts, you know, I, I, do you think others would warn Hurley about certain things yeah. uh, coming in the future? Maybe, but maybe not because they know things are going to work out. So what's the point? That's true as well. A little bit of fatalism from that perspective, right? Optimistic yeah. fatalism of, hey... You, you know, it's, it's going to happen anyway. If I try to screw something up, we might deviate from that path. Future ghosts. I like it. I want to chew on future ghosts a little bit more. <laughs> well, they're very tough to chew. They're invisible. They're hard to get a to get a bite out of. Um, from the great John Krause. John Krause. Where are you? John Krause. <laughs> I miss are you, you, man. Are, you the, are you in the Samba Trench? John, I miss you. Uh, John writes in making Eggtown a little bit better. Let's see if we can do it. Uh, if anyone can do it, certainly John can. Uh, John writes in and says, I'm not going to defend the Eggtown episode title, but I always read the title as a reference to the fragility of the situation in New Otherton. Locke's trying to make a society, but he's bad at it, and it's falling apart. Kate and Sawyer kind of playing house, but her potential pregnancy is revealing the cracks in their relationship. I know this goes against what Damon and Carlton have said, but I actually like my interpretation better. Um, as far as the title being Eggtown, do you like that interpretation, Mike, that it's about, like, the fragility, like the stability of everything that's going on in the barracks. 
I would like it if Eggtown meant something. Well, you I know, think like, like that's 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 the question here is like, can we rehab it to mean something but beyond mean, but, just that? Like the eggs are bullshit, as we discussed. Well, no, the, I mean, I would be fine if like the, the the shape of things to come is a phrase that's used outside of Lost, right? This was not a phraseology created for the sake of Lost. Eggtown is completely native to Lost. I have never, in a situation, walked by someone on the street who's saying, like, oh, you got your reports in Friday? Otherwise, we're going to be in a real egg town. So I, I just feel like... I think we you probably to, should start doing that, though, huh? Or should we start trying yeah. to put that into the vernacular? Yeah, like, anytime you get into, like, a sticky situation, oh, you're in a bit of an egg town, aren't you? Just yeah, everywhere you go, stepping almost, on eggshells. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like towing the line, right? Like, uh, walking on... I think we should substitute, you know, walking on thin ice with you're an egg town i uh, I don't want to say walking on thin ice anymore i don't want to say sticky situation i don't want to say you're in a bit of a pickle you're an egg town you're an egg town you're an egg town baby we have yeah. that baby at the end you're an egg town baby uh <laughs> you're you're here here's what it is you ready you're an egg town baby and the yolk's on you oh okay yeah, That's right the, all right so yeah. now if we have to substitute yeah. instead of saying yeah. you're on thin ice yeah. or your sticky situation yeah. you're an egg town, you're an egg town baby, baby and the baby yolk's, and the on, yolks you. on you yeah and then you push the person and then they fall down and you say go to shell and then they like uh crash onto all the shells yeah oh yeah all the shells that you lined up yeah. behind them yeah. over the course yeah, yeah, of the yeah. conversation yeah i don't know if it's necessary to push a person i think actually we shouldn't do that part. yeah let's not encourage uh physical no. violence no. but i do like I, let's let's see if the hatchlings let's see if we can sort of like spread our seeds here if you will and see if we can go out into the real world and please you're an egg town geez, baby yolks on you yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just try to put that in in your in your <laughs> real life, your work, your home life, this is your good. love life. This is good. This is good. Uh, and then and then I'll be happier with the title. Yeah, you're an egg town baby. The yolks on you. Uh, I think is pretty good. Uh, let's definitely carry forward with that. Uh, John Kraus returns uh, to talk about the constant uh, and the meta text of the constant. This is from John. John says, I'm not sure that I can articulate this correctly, but one of the most incredible things about The Constant is how it takes the meta text of the show and makes it textual. In a show that's largely about sci-fi mysteries, but is actually about love, we get an episode where the solution to the sci-fi mystery is literally Desmond's love for Penny. In a show that uses flashbacks as a plot device, we get an episode where the flashbacks become text. Desmond gets lost in them. The Constant takes the Lego building blocks of an episode and hands them to the characters on the show. Um, that's a really so, cool way Sawyer's, of looking at the constant. And then Sawyer steps on those Lego blocks because he's barefoot. I, I yeah, love and this. And then I think uh, at that point, Hurley laughs him and goes, <laughs> you're an egg town, baby. And he yokes on, on you. you and then pushes him into those Legos. Yeah, so he, he says, go to further. shell. Go to shell. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I think that it's a really, really great take that it's taking these components that are quintessential lost and breaking them down and then building them back up again in a completely new way. I think the Lego analogy is actually very pertinent as well. And I, I will also say on the realm of the constant, I, I did receive word from a couple of people that said that they showed the constant as a standalone episode in various media classes. And so I guess our question cool. about, yeah. oh, could you people who have never seen Lost before, can they watch the constant and still get, you know, their jollies off of it? That's a big thumbs up. 
Nice. Awesome. Well, kudos to your jollies. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> another phrase we should put out. <laughs> kudos. Kudos, to your kudos to your jollies is a good one, too. What is exactly does that mean? I, I think it's I like, think it has congratulations to be used, on your good time. Like, I'm happy I think it has for you. To be used sarcastically, though, like, well, kudos, well, to, kudos your jollies. to your jollies. <laughs> yeah. Kudos to your jollies. Uh, is uh, what you say right before you push somebody into the eggshells and say, go to shell. Yeah, like, kudos to your jollies, buddy, but I got news for you. You're yeah. an egg town You're baby. An egg the yolks on you. you. Yeah. Oh, this is really starting to become something. <laughs> um, uh, let's get it. We're getting into Webster's by the end of 2021. I'm calling it right now. All right. Let's talk about GE on. We're just blitzing through season four at the same clip that season four goes through. Um, and this is about son's birth scene. And this is written from the perspective of a nurse. Uh, yeah. so this is from, from, uh, Megan. There's a plot twist, uh, at the end of this that I'm really excited Hello, about. Hello, nurse. Uh, so Megan writes in and says, okay, so labor and delivery nurse here. I know that TV births are always unrealistic, but I have to comment on son's birth because it actually got me upset. What it depicts is the total opposite of what normal birth looks like. And it actually depicts son being assaulted. By the doctor. Uh, first, hmm. the doctor gets the nurse to push pain meds without any patient consent. Then he tells son the baby is in distress without even listening to the baby's heartbeat or assessing in any way. And then the next scene, he's telling her she needs a C-section with, again, not assessing her. I totally understand TV births don't need to be 100% realistic, but the fact that they write this abusive scene and act like it's a normal birth makes me sick. It makes me sad that a woman could watch this and think that this is normal. Um, that's terrible. That's not the, mm-hmm. the, the plot twist that's, that's coming up. Um, but I really appreciate that perspective. We always love it when we have, um, professionals who can write in and like give us their takes yeah. on like certain things. Cause you know, lost, uh, you know, I don't think that they have like actual doctors in the writer's room or nurses in the writer's room or psychologists. No, yeah. I mean, it's become abundantly clear that I think between, uh, you know, whether it's a national thing with Australia or an occupational thing with mm-hmm. the medical profession, you know, these these are TV writers writing for TV and they are they're not necessarily well equipped to talk about certain things, including the the dramatized version of a birth, which I think Megan put uh, unfortunately, but extremely well. Yeah. So this is from Megan. This is the twist. Megan says on a lighter note, I know Jin wasn't going to the birth of his own baby, but I couldn't help but laugh thinking about how pissed off I would have been if I was in labor and my husband showed up late holding a giant stuffed panda. And then it's signed off as Megan, wife of Eric Divestein. Eric Divestein missed another birthday. No, Eric, you missed it. <laughs> Dude, that pen is not going to make up yeah. for it. You're an Eggtown baby. You're an Eggtown baby. The yolk's on you. Go to Shell. Uh, man, I think that's a joke for like four people who who laughed at the Eric Divestein gag uh, earlier in the season. So we should also mention now that we are done time traveling. Eric, Eric wish a happy birthday on time. Yes, you know he did, he did. Uh, but in this alternate universe, he just showing up with the panda a little too late. It's not going to cut it. Not going to cut oh, it. Oh yeah, Eric. and I completely agree with Megan. Had I shown up late for my son's birth, oh, you'd be in so with- much trouble. Oh, I would. I don't think I'd. Ha- I don't think I'd have to like change states. I'd have yeah. to go into like witness Secret protection identity. and become a new yeah. person. Mm-hmm. Whitpro, Whitpro Bloom. Well, sp- speaking of that, let's talk about Meet Kevin Johnson. Yes. Okay. So talking about Meet Kevin Johnson as we continue through all the episodes and all the feedback. This is from Garrett. Garrett writes in and says, probably one of my biggest problems in the show was the time issues between Tom Friendly and Michael and Meet Kevin Johnson. It's hard to believe a period where he left the island to convince Michael to do his job and was able to get back before the sub exploded. Also, do the others know the exact time equation when they go off island and how can they afford to do what they do 
off island uh this is maybe the point where i'm supposed to like have something for garrett where i'm like well this is how i have nothing i'm with you garrett like this stuff as i've said like it just sticks so firmly and squarely in my craw stuck it lives in my craw mike get that thing out of your craw it's been living there for years and years it lives in my it lives in my craw it's actually a decent tenant it pays rent on time oh Uh, no has it has it bread in your craw is it craw bread it's craw bread (laughs) <laughs> don't take it's it to stuck. that crawl bread it's stuck it's stuck yeah, I, mean, I don't want to i don't want to rehash what we talked about on meet kevin johnson uh but you know if for me it is uh, not i would definitely not say it's one of my biggest problems in the entire show i think i have much bigger problems with characters than i do with with plot points like this i mean this is timey-wiminess that they did not exactly have the exact metrics figured out in terms of the time displacement. We even got that a little bit at the end of season four, right, with the whole Dr. Ray thing of, okay, wait, before it was like a couple of hours they were displaced, now it seems like it's 12 hours or even close to a day that things are off. It almost seems like by the minute, the time difference between On Island and the real world is just wildly out of control and i wonder if you ask the lost writers they would just shrug you know shrug it off onto that yeah right of oh yeah at any point in time it could be one minute or it could be one day yeah i mean i think like it, for whatever reason logistically though it does it does annoy me and like i just haven't evolved to the place where i can like wrap my head around you know in the way that like i could say that the whispers are the ghosts in an alliance with the others or there's a mini monster. Like I haven't been able to mini monster the timey wiminess of the Meet Kevin Johnson episode just because like I'm not I'm not ready to give it that chance, I guess. I just I'm not. Um, maybe someday I really thought it would be on this rewatch, but it clearly was not. But I do agree that there are other things that I have bigger problems with. This is interesting from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Should Walt have returned with Michael in Meet Kevin Johnson? Like, was this the opportunity, Mike, for Walt to come back? onto the show should he have like hitched a ride on the freighter would that have been a twist at the end of the episode is it possible is it possible that there were plans for walt to come back in season four in a deeper way that got cut because of the writer's strike uh, that mm, i don't know because i don't know how much malcolm david kelly was eager to come back you know, I'm sure he'd say, hey, thanks for... we talked for, about like, this a little bit, right? Like, yeah, he's a kid, little... he's living his life. Exactly. Like, I think he's like, yeah, guys, I'll do the cameo for you in the finale, but I don't necessarily know if I want to come back to doing Lost in the way that Harold Perrineau is, considering they're living very different lives at that point. With regards to the question about whether he should have been on the boat, though, no, I don't think so. Especially with the way that things played out, Michael's storyline was truncated enough Imagine putting Walt on there and having to now, I mean, it would have been a great father-son arc, but we wouldn't have gone that at all just due to everything they would have had to get through in episodes 9 through 14. So, it, yeah, it would have been interesting. I, I don't know. I like the, the the state that Michael is left in here where Walt refuses to talk to him. It would be an odd character choice for him to be like, oh, nope, I'm getting on the boat. Nah, I hate you, Dad, but I'm still going to sail with you back to the island. Yeah. Could have been interesting. Uh, I do. I. I man. I. I really do. Just wish that we'd gotten Walt back. Uh, we've talked about a couple of possibilities for where that could have happened. I don't know. Um, more on Meet Kevin Johnson from David. David writes in and says, "When Daniel first reached the island, he did experiments that established that time on the island is wibbly. They never explain how or why or how much the island was off by. Could this not have been used to hand wave Michael's timeline?" 
Maybe it's just that time on the island is messed up. Right. So that's what I was talking about before, right? That's the hand-waving thing of, well, time on the island is just weird. But yeah, we never did get an explanation for all this talk about what the island is, especially when we get into the more mystical elements in season six as to why time just functions very differently, almost seems like a different time zone entirely from the direct vicinity around it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like you could, you could have applied that to the Michael storyline to a certain extent. I'm just not ready to do that. Uh, but this point about Daniel leads us to the shape of things Daniel? to come. Daniel? Uh, leads us to the shape of things to come, leads us to Andrew Yu, who writes in and says, why doesn't Daniel just tell them about potential time differences? Which could explain the doctor? It's not like they aren't aware that freaky shit happens here. Uh, for those who forget, uh, in The Shape of Things to Come, this is where Dr. Ray's dead body washes up onto the beach, even though the doctor's fine. Um, and like, is this, is this just the show removing this from the narrative, Mike, for us? Or is this like a boo on Faraday, uh, where he should have known that like oh man dr ray is gonna get killed on the boat like he's the time travel guy right like he probably should have figured out what happened here i think this is a little bit of a boo on faraday i mean we talked about this episode how he just does a poor job of obscuring things and like you mentioned he's gonna get caught out by bernard for trying to lie i think at this point let's remember that this is post the other woman uh post g on where the approval ratings of the freighters is not at its lowest, but it's not exactly at its highest either. I think that Daniel commandeers things in the constant to help Desmond. But I think there are there are concepts that he is not necessarily eager to explain to people unless he has to. Even at the end of season four, right, he's not necessarily going to talk about what he might be theorizing with the time travel or the the timey wiminess, as was mentioned, until season five, when they're just like, okay, this is happening now. Let me explain it. I think it just might be a matter of Daniel Faraday feeling like this is not the proper audience for this type of stuff. Yes, they've gone through a lot of shit, but this might be one step too far, in his opinion. Speaking of Daniel, let's take this from a different Daniel. Uh, This is from Daniel Brennan, who writes in and says, I still want to better understand the war between Charles Whitmore and Ben Linus. Did Whitmore's people really kill Nadia? Why did Ben have Nadia killed so he could manipulate Saeed into working for him? How does killing Whitmore's associates actually protect Saeed's friends? Just a lot of questions surrounding the war between um, Widmore and and Ben. And I would use that uh, to like sort of leapfrog us into this from Noah, who had written in and said that I love season four because of its place in the big picture of Lost. To me, the show is like that picture book Zoom that zooms out a little more in each page to reveal that you're actually looking at something else that you needed to see a little more to understand. In each season, we zoom out more. We learn more about the characters, but even more about the island, the world, and the mythology and in season four, the zoomed out picture lands on the war between Ben and Charles, two complicated, kind of evil, very interesting men who are after the same thing, this island with powers they consider to be theirs. It's the kind of mythology I like in a show. It's the right level. When it's still too mysterious, I'm on board, but still waiting to see if I buy in. When we get into the spiritual and semi-religious stuff later, they kind of lose me. I like the gear we're in during season four, and I wish that I understood Widmore's side more, even if later on they do in season six to a degree. Do you think there's a way to finish telling the story without making the last Zoom war about Jacob and the smoke monster? So I think these questions are kind of in uh, conversation with Mm -hmm. each other to a certain degree, Mike. 
Yeah, I think it's it's to varying degrees of satisfaction about again one of the many pivots they take in season four is to really bring charles winmore into the picture as the big bad we really talked about this right where previously we just thought this was the a-hole who pees all over desmond's hands uh in the constant but no it turns out he has a history with the island he has a history with ben he's trying to get onto the island or back onto the island he hires merciless mercs to just kill people blindly to get what they want like charles winmore ascends to really really evil status to the point where he becomes our lvp of season four and so i do think it's it's a big move with regards to you know daniel brennan's question i think that uh, it's interesting because i think that ben having nadia killed would be a real Ben Linus move, right? It's very much convincing Locke to blow up the sub, having someone else do his dirty work. But I feel like, now maybe correct me if I'm wrong with season five, I feel like Ben doesn't really have many associates besides Saeed when he's off island right now. No, like, he he does. He has like the person at like the at the dry cleaner. Like he seems to have some people that he is able to to work with. I think there's like a butcher. We're going to see pretty quickly that he has a network for sure that he's leaning on. Okay, so then I let's go with the estimate that he has Nadia killed so that he wants to recruit Saeed. I think that maybe, you know what? Let's head candidate when Benjamin Linus was being tortured by Saeed Jarrah, he sort of files that away in his head. Right of this man is capable of doing very bad things if he is passionate for saving something. And so Ben knows how to break Saeed. He knows how to send him to Eggtown, baby. And he sends Nadia to Shell by killing her. And as a result, is able to then recruit Saeed to do his dirty work, knowing that Saeed is a huge asset, but he needs something to push him into Ben's arms. I think I like this idea, uh, especially like the idea of Ben in like the pantry and like that day when he gets tortured by his side. It's like, oh, this guy's going to regret this. Yeah. Like he's going to regret this so much. I it's, think it's, it's, it's an interesting idea, right? It's almost like the long game of, oh, yeah, you may have won the battle, but I'm going to win the war because I'm going to recruit you at the end. Yeah. So I feel like, especially because like, what sense does it really seem to make from Widmore's side of things to have killed Nadia? It's hard hard for me to envision. Yeah, um, unless, unless he is, he's in the super villain school, right, of don't directly kill the character, but kill someone who's close to the character to break them, but that feels a little too tropey for me. And, and season six doesn't really give us a lot that indicates that that's something that Widmore would necessarily be after with the no, if, with if the anything candidates. that's something that benjamin linus would do this yeah. is the guy who tells winmore i'm not gonna kill you but i'm gonna kill your daughter yeah uh we could you know open this up to theories for from people but certainly like going in to season five you know in terms of like things to watch is there anything that like sort of like further proves one way or the other could be that there's like actual you know canon proof one way or the other that i'm missing um but i i think that this makes sense to me that Ben would be responsible. Um, anyway, I, I do agree. I wish that we'd gotten more of the Ben and Widmore stuff. I think it's one of the one of the sins of season six is the way that they uh, they treat some of that storyline. Um, all right, something nice back home from Susan. Susan writes in and says, "A lost nitpick that has bothered me for years. What did poor baby Aaron eat after Claire did her disappearing act? 
Definitely some time passed before they got on the helicopter, and I doubt they had bottles and formula at the beach or on the freighter, not to mention the days they spent on Penny's boat. Yeah, so, I mean, I can definitely agree with Susan. Uh, you know, as someone who had a three-month-old, some of them may may still choose to breastfeed. Some, like Asher, had moved on to formula. I don't think it's completely out of the picture for there to be Dharma formula. That maybe at a certain point they're like, well, there ain't no babies on this island, so uh, maybe we don't need to send any more baby stuff. But it seemed like they had stuff in stock, right? They decorated an entire baby's room in the staff. We just don't see any of it. It's like, again, going back to the 24 analogy, we just have to assume that when we don't see Jack Bauer, he's going to the bathroom. Right. Uh, that it's, it's just a, a part of the reality that happens off screen, and we just never happen to happen to see this poor baby being ever fed ever. This is another great uh, thing from uh, Something Nice Back Home. This is from Andrew, who wrote in uh, with a theory about why Jack got sick with the appendicitis while on the island, and Rose was questioning how this was possible. Um, Andrew writes and says, one of Jack's biggest flaws is trusting other people and relying on others to help him. He's then given a very serious condition, but also has qualified people around to help him in terms of Bernard and Juliet. The island helps him let go and allows others to help him, which is in a way healing for Jack. I'm reminded of a quote from season two when Echo says to Bernard, people are saved in different ways. We could use Bernard's quote in this episode to fit this situation. People are sick in different ways, Rose. Yeah, I I think that is incredibly well said. Who knew between that and the appendix being a metaphor for the island that something nice back home would become so meaningful in so many ways? Yes, uh, very profound, very profound here in uh, in the appendicitis thing. And I still do love the idea that like the appendicitis was a long con where they're like, well, we know that we're going to like kill Jack by the end of the show. Let's give him appendicitis so that when we do the flash sideways stuff, people are really going to be thrown for a loop. Yeah, when he gets stabbed there, uh, we know it'll hit somewhere good and then he'll bleed through there. We have the whole <laughs> appendix-based storyline to end the series, so we got to plant the seed here. Although one thing that's interesting is, isn't it like uh, Locke gets like shot where the kidney is supposed to be and he lives because of it, mm-hmm. and then Jack gets stabbed uh, where his appendix ought to be and he dies. Could that be because Jacob is not alive then? Maybe. Also because Jack sucks. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe also because he then like just like bombs himself with uh, radioactive energy from the heart of the island. That's probably more the thing that he's not yeah, Desmond. I mean, I he say, can't it wasn't the stab that. wound and more so like just a combination. This guy was basically it's like, it's like, it's like the I am Iron Man stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he Jack's frail uh, mortal form can't tolerate the Infinity Stones or the uh, yeah, Electromagnetic. When Paltrow doesn't remember that she was in the series finale of Law, she was cradling Jack's head as he lay dying in the jungle. Correct. Um, all right. Uh, let's get into cabin fever. This is from Bradley, who says, is there a reason foreseeable to the man in black as to why he would instruct Locke to move the island? Um, yeah, I think that this is like, this is in the vein of, you know, there's a loop that needs to be broken and the monster has been around for so, so, so long. And the monster is seemingly aware of most of the things that happen on the island. John Locke is going to be in the past. He's going to the 1950s. So in the 1950s, the monster may encounter John Locke in the jungle or see John Locke in the jungle. Be like, What's that dude all about? 
find out a little bit more and then be like, oh, so that guy's going to travel through time. Why? Oh, because I'm going to make him travel through time so that I'm going to you know, do blah, 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 do like the whole manipulative cycle. So um, is there a reason as to why he would instruct Locke to move the island? I think probably to like begin this record skipping process that's going to lead to him being able to shape shift into John Locke later on. Yeah, because I think uh, otherwise, if John Locke dies, where does that send the paths? You know, and it's possible that if more mercs come to the island, then John Locke dies and then the whole thing just goes kablooey this is a way for him to say okay whatever happened happened let me make sure that that record stays on here even though it's going to skip around a bunch yeah um from david again david says that the items the six items richard shows to Locke are all very much emblematic of john Locke's life story david says the compass represents Locke being a leader he doesn't pick this he ultimately fails as a leader uh baseball represents paternal relationships seen through jack and dogan uh Locke doesn't pick this his father tries to kill him and boone dies because of Locke. the book of laws represents being a man of faith mr echo tells Locke a story about a book of laws the book of laws represents being a man of faith he doesn't pick this he stops pushing the button nearly ending the world um david says the vial is my thinnest justification but depending upon what the granules are the vial could represent being a farmer ben martell notes at this point that the granules look like sand, and in this analogy, it might represent being a beach person slash member of Oceanic 815, which Locke also rejects. Um, or it could be um, when he wa- when his coffin washes up on the shores of the beach right. when he comes back to the island. Yep. Uh, the comic is subtitled, What Was the Secret of the Mysterious Hidden Land? The comic is clearly science fiction. The comic represents being a man of science. Locke doesn't pick this, and when Richard attempts to recruit him for science camp as a teen, he rejects the role again. John picks the knife. When he went into the sweat lodge, he determined that he was a hunter, and he was right. John attempts to, to fill many roles over the course of his life and fails in pretty much all of them. But by using the knives that he brought to the island, John provides for the survivors of 815 by hunting boars. It's the one thing he does better than anyone over the course of the entire show. John knew who he really was even from childhood, but Richard told him it was the wrong choice. And he spent the rest of his life trying to find the right one, the one to prove that he was, as Richard said, special. It was a futile search, which ultimately got him killed. That's so sad. It's so sad. I like that. I, that. I like that interpretation. Oh, I, I think it's good. I love that so much. It's not just a it's random like he found his thing. Like he picked up the things like, oh, I'd be good with this. And Richard's like, what are you? Some sort of monster? And this poor kid is like, oh, I just thought like maybe I could do cool stuff. No, I, I think we talked about this a bit during Cabin Fever, right? That Locke ends up being right in this regard where Richard Alpert's looking for a man of science. John Locke is a man of action, but it turns out that Locke being the man of action is what was needed in this moment uh, in order to, you know, keep everything going as it were. So, yeah, I, I like this idea. But the unfortunate thing, again, part of the insurmountable tragedy of John Locke is that while he has picked the right path, I don't think he realizes it. He is he does have this moment, like we said, probably the highest moment for John Locke at the end of season four, when basically he's told, welcome home. You're finally the leader of the others. You're basically the ruler of this island. But he's still going to then be driven to go off island to keep, you know, everything going and it's going to result in his death. So it's this thing of even when you've gotten what you wanted to, he feels like there's a higher calling that is going to pull him away from that path and ultimately to his doom. Um, Let's go into the finale. There's no place like home. Dallin Servo returns to ask, is moving the island the craziest thing to happen in the show? Certainly up to this point, right? Like, Like the flash forward is a huge twist. 
the constant is like super emotional, but the entire island just like disappearing in time and space is probably the craziest thing that happens up to this point. I think just from a pure magnanimity perspective, yes, that an entire physicalized geographical formation up and disappears and starts traveling through the space-time continuum is absolutely ludicrous. From a more micro perspective, you might say something like flashes before your eyes might be something right of, of Desmond's consciousness traveling back through time, especially considering we hadn't seen anything in the series up to that point. But I think just purely in terms of scale, it has to be moving the island, not just because of the fact that it blips out of space, but that it is going to now send the show into quite the weird path. Um, Connor asks, uh, speaking of the island moving, Ben tells Locke that whoever moves the island can never return. Was this ever explained, or is it Ben lying in this moment as he obviously comes back on the Ajira flight? Do you think that in the moment he moves the island, he wanted to be leaving for good? Mike, I would say that this is probably like... um, if you if you say that like the thing between Ben and Widmore, like he changed the rules, isn't like you know like some like sacred thing that is literally immutable, uh, but instead is like the gentleman's agreement has been violated, right? Like the yeah. gentleman's agreement is like if you turn the wheel, you can't come back. Like that's like a sacrificial move. You're not allowed to come back, but you are like literally you could come back. Uh, like I think that's probably the way to view it for me. Yeah, and I mean, you have to look at how Ben Linus acts when he's alone, right? When he is very rarely in a position where he doesn't manipulate anyone. And he looks, we talked about this from Michael Emerson's fantastic performance, like he looks legitimately remorseful and emotional leaving the island. I don't know, that feels significantly different to me than all the other times we've seen him leave the island prior. Because, I mean, they had that freaking file photo of him, Miles did, of him in an airport. It's clear that he's fine physically leaving the island. I don't know. I, I just think this time felt different for him. It's palpable. Maybe it's just a matter of, of Ben realizes that since the situation's constantly changing or Jack says that he wants to bring everyone back that maybe Ben sees a, you know, almost self-sabotaging himself. He got his chance of redemption. And now he's like, Nope, I want to have my cake and eat, eat it too. Back to the Island. I go to save it from Charles Winmore. But something just felt different about that scene that didn't necessarily scream to me. Oh, yeah, he's just playing everybody. He wanted to push the wheel so that he could leave the island. Um, Kathy uh, writes this. Kathy says, I don't believe Ben lost control when he killed Kimi. I think he saw it as an opportunity to stop the freighter and the people from leaving. I don't believe redemption as an idea for Ben. He's left the island before. He has ideas on how to get back. Ben wanted off the island so he could get revenge on Charles Widmore. In my mind, Ben is still manipulating. I don't see him being genuine with John Locke and the Orchid. Ben's a liar. I don't see him genuinely start to change until after he kills Jacob. I think this is oh. interesting. Uh, and this opens up for for me, Mike, um, that like, what's the surest fire way of not getting murdered by all of these mercenaries right now? Leaving the island and going to Tunisia in a, the, the span of 10 seconds. Um, yeah, that tracks that that would be, I always have a plan. Ben's able to just kind of boogie on out of town and he'll take his chances back out there in the real world. I don't know. That feels that erases to me, though, the reaction he had to Alex. Specifically, Kathy's statement of, I don't see him genuinely start to change until after he kills Jacob. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't like that because I feel like then it mitigates the turn that he takes after the shape of things to come. Mm-hmm. If we're still waiting on a season for Ben Linus to truly turn. 
But I think it could be back of the mind stuff, right? If he always has a plan. I mean, I, I could see that. But again, I'll go back to my previous answer that I also feel like that diminishes the the final scene of I hope you're happy now, Jacob. Like, why would he say that if he's going to leave the if, he, if he's purposely skipping out, out of town? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think like, are you happy now like that? Like you've pushed me to this point. Like, are you happy now that like I'm not going to be in charge? Like, Even if he's got designs on how to get back, like he's still going to be gone for a while. You know, it's a desperate move. He's, you know, uh, he's he's opening up the emergency exit. You don't do that unless it's an emergency. I mean, the tough thing as well is that I'm assuming that Ben does Ben know that when he pushes the wheel that the island's now going to start skipping through time. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that he knows that it's going to like he's going to do like a crappy job. I don't think that that's really <laughs> on his mind. That John Locke has to go down and, and yeah, fix it. Because yeah. if that's the thing, too, then that really is also a permanence thing of, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll have a plan to go back, but like, I don't know when we'll come back. I don't know what the state of this is going to be. And hell, I might be on a plane that cracks in half and half winds up in the 1970s and half winds up in 2007. Right, right. Uh, I think it's even just the bodies get teleported. I don't know. We'll get there. It's coming up. Uh, <laughs> from uh, from Av. Av writes in, Av Zanensky, uh, great finale, 4.2, yet somehow it could have been even greater had we not been quote-unquote spoiled on the identities of the Oceanic Six. I wonder how season four plays out differently if they had decided not to do the flash forwards this season. Uh, uh, I, I know. So I've, I've continues and says season four and five feel very rushed. One of my main takeaways is what is historically always described as the showrunner's blessing, i.e. securing an end date ends up actually being partially a curse. Um, what are your thoughts on an alternate version of lost where we don't find out who the oceanic six are until now and then spend season five focusing on their off-island stories in a more fleshed-out fashion before bringing them back. Um, Respectfully, Uh, I think I prefer it the way that it is. Yeah, Av, I love you. I hate this idea. (laughs) Okay, wow. Harsh. Well, I I just... There's there's so much good stuff that comes from these flash-forwards. I think... The the media res technique, I know that that Rick and Morty, you know, really dresses it down, but I think it works really well here, not only to compare and contrast off island with on island in a very reverse way that we usually do with the flashbacks of how the hell did Jack Shepard get to bearded depressed state from where he was before. And I think there is still suspense that exists within there's no place like home. We talked about it a lot. They had the big freaking map of where the oceanic six were. You go in there thinking how the hell are all those people going to come together? And even then you still get big twists like Desmond being there, like Frank Lapidus being there characters that you think might not necessarily get their happy endings might not make it out of it alive considering how much Desmond has experienced misery throughout his time on loss. And so there are still surprises, even when you know what the endings are. And I guess my, my question back to Av or someone who likes this is what would replace it? More flashbacks? Yeah. I feel like, like the only thing that would make sense is like, you're then, and this, this maybe does make sense to me is you condense these final three seasons into two. Mm. Um, you do five seasons instead of six. You don't have a writer's strike, ideally. Uh, because like, if you have to come back and like, I mean, I guess, you know what? There is a world where like season five 
coming off of the writer's strike and you have like a fully intact season five could have been utilized as like a pretty epic final season. Like I do think there's a version of it. Um, and I think that most of the, you know, the empty ish episodes, like the empty calories of lost in this <laughs> stage are going to be in that final season for me. Um, that like maybe there's a world where you condense these three into two. And so like aspects of five are baked into four and aspects of six are baked into five. I don't know. I think ultimately, even with the flawed final season, I prefer it this way because I think there are so many gems in season four and more to the point uh, for me, so many gems in season five. I'm so happy to get to season five. Because I feel like I feel like if you're trying to bring elements of season five into season four as well, like that feels a little bit muddied. Something that I really enjoy about season four, specifically, we talked about this and there's no place like home is that there's this great Ouroboros like circuitous effect where it starts with the Oceanic Six touching down on the mainland and then it ends on the main timeline with how they got there. It would feel weird to mix in elements from season five of like them trying to go back to the island. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd be more... Uh, hate is a strong word. I guess I'd be more amenable to it if there was an alternative to it. If it's just, okay, we don't do any flashbacks or flash forwards, uh, with the exception of maybe the confirmed dead stuff, and just focus on the island stuff. I don't know. That, that feels like a missed opportunity for me, narratively speaking. I think we're losing stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, from Bradley, uh, why did they lie? What would have changed about the series if the Oceanic Six hadn't lied? Did the lie really protect those people they left behind? I guess I, I would love to know, Mike, um, let's like game this out a little bit. The Oceanic Six return, they decide to just be cards up about absolutely everything. Um, what what happens in this version where they don't lie? I mean, I guess would it be that there's a bigger concern about finding the island, that it becomes more of a worldwide search of, okay, this place does exist and all this crazy crap happens on it and there are people there that we need to rescue and that might draw more eyes to the island, which they definitely don't want at this point. Yeah, but more eyes on the island maybe means that uh, the chance of rescuing them is increased. You have wider right. search, wider net. But it might also bring in more nefarious people I suppose. as well. I suppose, I suppose. Uh, so you're pro-lie. Uh, I mean, I'm. I guess I'm pro. You're endorsing lying. Oh well, yeah, always. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm endorsing the idea of obscuring the truth. I think the way they go about it, and we're going to talk about this actually in a bit of an extracurricular later on, has a lot of holes that can be poked into well, it. Well, why don't we talk about that really quickly right now? Actually, yeah, let's do it. Um, so one of the one of like the ancillary things that you can check out as it pertains to Lost during this era of the show is what like a fictional documentary that explores like the conspiracies around the Oceanic Six. Talk to me about it because I know you watched this in preparation for the podcast. I did, and I. I actually really recommend people do as well if you have like 20 spare minutes we'll put it in the show notes it's called the oceanic six a conspiracy of lies and it is one of the most committed bits i have ever seen from a pop culture piece basically they do like an entire expose not the show razzle dazzle Razzle -dazzle. but but they do like an entire you know piece you would see on on you know uh maybe like an unsolved mysteries type of show complete with really cheesy graphics overlays illustrations etc where a narrator takes you through the supposed story of the oceanic six 
and why it doesn't logically make sense. And when I say they commit, I mean it in every sense of every single letter. They are interviewing experts, like they interview an aviation expert to talk about, hey, if a plane hit the water, would it end up in the, the same way that the Oceanic A15 wreckage did? They talk with like a prenatal nurse about what uh, a woman who's six months pregnant should look like and how it didn't look like Kate Austin. Like, it's, it seems like they went to seemingly normal people in their places of work and said, we are going to ask you these questions and film you for this fake documentary that we are doing. It is incredibly well done. Like I said, they do a really fun meta job of poking holes at many arguments. Like why are they so well fed and well shorn and wearing different clothes? If they were stranded on an Island for 108 days or even in a raft for however long. A raft. Exactly. Why is Kate Austin, you know, Kate Austin was seen photographed at the airport and was apparently six months pregnant and she looks nothing like it. But hey, here's this eyewitness who said she ran into someone named Claire who was on Oceanic 815, allegedly. Like, there's a really fun, deep dive into all of this stuff that doesn't make sense about this. Obviously, this doesn't end up seeing the light of day in the, the main show, right? Nobody's like, oh, my God, I'm putting all the pieces together. But it just lines up really nicely, especially in a 2021 sense, right, with like our conspiracy theory based world. This one ends up being mostly correct, but it is so well done. It is incredibly well done. It impressed me so much. So, again, and the Oceanic Six, a conspiracy of lies. It's a really fun faux documentary. Better than um, the like the the search for Alvar Hanzo stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just like this more because they really commit to the quality of the program. I think that's that's it for me is that I think it just it's it's it reeks of that type of chintziness that you experience on these types of shows, how well edited it is and how you have the narrator coming in saying, you know, they claimed it was this. But are they lying? Like right, they just right, they right. really they put full it. effort into it. Maybe it's because they had so much time on their hands after the in the midst of the writer strike that they were planning all this stuff and these featurettes to do. But I don't know, Josh, do we feel like we are in an era where those types of things are no longer happening? Like, um, you know, well, I think one of the reasons certainly why it would it would feel that way and in, indeed may be that way. And in fact, I do believe it is. Uh, there's so much more content now and there's so many different ways to get that content and stuff is just like coming out, coming out nonstop. Like, like every week, you know, Falcon, the winter soldier ended and that same day, Netflix dropped the entirety of shadow and bone. Uh, and like two weeks after, after that, Netflix is going to drop their their brand new superhero show. Um, and the day that this is out, Invincible is ending. Like Amazon will move on to the next thing. You know, like there's just something is always on. So I think that there just like isn't like the we we're moving away from the water cooler. You know, the water yeah. cooler is the the valve is being shut. Uh, yeah, we're, and, so we're Tobias Fumke walking around holding the water cooler the entire look, time. I mean, our water's being sloshed on I our think, feet. I think certainly there's like a very practical reason why post show recap specifically I can speak to uh, like turned towards older material uh, over the past year to year and a half at this point, uh, certainly pandemic related, right? Like new stuff isn't coming out that much anymore. But I think that one of the things that um, we've we have like 
seized upon as a community, not just as podcasters, but also as like listeners and, and participants in in talking this stuff through in, in like this, like, you know, campfire circle that we find ourselves in is that like we're talking about like sort of like the water cooler stuff. And so there's like a, some there's some semblance of like nostalgia for the shows that had that event level status, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a, a drama uh, like a like a like a prestige drama or a network drama like this uh, or uh, like a network sitcom like community um that i think that there or or a cinematic universe like marvel those are events um and i think that like even like the the disney plus shows are like the closest thing to events right now they're just fewer and further between and um because like during this time on lost they were at the rate that they were you had like lost right now um I, don't think I know. Game I know they did. The Office did like a lot mm-hmm. of behind the scenes stuff. Like they did all these webisodes yeah. and other things that were happening that were posted just web only content. Yeah, we're just like in a very different time in television right now. Uh, both like at where we're talking right now, but what we're talking about is also that's a yeah. very different time that we're talking about. And you can get away more with like the viral marketing stuff, like the the why so serious Dark Knight Joker campaigns and stuff like that. Um, that just doesn't really happen successfully anymore. Um, and there are ways in which, like, I think that that's probably good. Uh, that money is probably much better spent elsewhere. But also, I think it's like kind of like a funky relic of these times. And I appreciate yeah. the existence of those relics. And if uh, things like that can come back in some way, that sort of like, uh, you know, feats the events, because I think that they are worth feating. Uh, I, I'm here for it, but I, I, it should be done wisely. It should be done intelligently. It shouldn't just be done just to be done. Yeah, I mean, I think we get it a little bit, right? We had the Mr. Robot ARG. We had the Delos website with Westworld. So I think especially these types of mystery box shows in the vein of Lost have maybe tried to do it to build out their mythology. It was just, it's like you said, it's a relic for better or for worse. And so it's really fun to explore that type of stuff that, oh yeah, Lost made an entire you know, fake featurette in the style of a made-up show doing an expose on the Oceanic Six. It is yeah. a remarkable commitment. Yes. Um, all right, let's keep going further. Um, this is from uh, this is from Sno- Snorri Jonsson again. Um, how stupid is Kimi's plan to connect the bomb on the freighter to his own heartbeat? He then tells this to Ben to make sure that Ben doesn't kill him. He should know that Ben would actually want everyone on the freighter dead! Yeah, I'm a little confused about this as well. Did he assume that the Oceanic Six would go back to the freighter? And so then, like, oh, these are hostages that I'm holding. You would imagine that he he has to assume that Ben's a little unhinged after killing his daughter, no? Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, So, I don't know, miscalculations abound. The great yeah, Brennan Fitzpatrick and agrees. Yeah, speaking of miscalculations, Fitzy says that uh, there was, uh, you know, we again, we talk about the timey-wiminess. Oddly instantaneous when the red light triggers, right? And uh, and all of a sudden, as soon as Kimi dies, oh, here comes the switch that flips all of a sudden. So I guess in that moment, there is no time difference between the boat and the island, unless for some reason that particular one radio signal differentiates itself from literally everything else. Yeah. Uh, from Dallin Cervo, uh, I never noticed this until this rewatch. Earlier in the episode, Jack tells John there's no such thing as miracles. After the helicopter crash and they're all on the boat, Kate says about Aaron, it's a miracle he wasn't hurt. And Jack has this look. Just that little mm. tidbit stood out to me this time. 
Really good call, Dallin. That's I don't know if that was purposefully done or not, but that's a really great connection that Jack is. We talk about Jack's slow segue into becoming a bit of a man of faith at the end of the episode with him saying we have to lie. And again, your mileage may vary as to whether they had to lie. But this might have been, again, a little nudge of him realizing, oh, yeah, I might be wrong about some of these claims I made to John Locke earlier. And if I'm wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, potentially wrong about a lot. Could be wrong about <laughs> exactly. quite a bit. Um, all right. Speaking of being wrong from Abraham, Abraham thinks, uh, Mike thinks you're wrong. Uh, thinks you're wrong. Thinks John Locke is wrong. This is from Abraham. After you played the sound of Locke and Jack's last on-island conversation, Mike said that John would ultimately be proven right. And I don't agree that Locke is right in any meaningful way. Locke doesn't prevent Widmore from finding the island. His actions as Jeremy Bentham actually lead Widmore to the island. Locke is wrong in two major ways that the show is dishonest about. That the Oceanic Six leaving the island is what caused the time disease. And two, that the Oceanic Six chose to leave. We know that what causes the issues on island is not the Oceanic Six leaving, but is instead because of Locke's plan. He's moving the island on the advice of the man in black, so it's not surprising he made the wrong call. Ben fails to move the donkey wheel properly, so the record is skipping. And let's not forget why the island has to be moved. Whose fault is that? How did Kimi find the island? Maybe that guy who insisted upon not pushing the button causing a major electromagnetic event should take some blame here. And even more importantly, what were the Oceanic Six supposed to do? The island was gone. They didn't leave the island. The island left them. If Jack and the others did not leave on the helicopter, then they would be stuck in time disease hell just like everybody else. How would that have helped anybody? John Locke was wrong about everything. He should have kept pressing the button. He should have never listened to the man in black. The Oceanic Six did not need to lie, nor did they need to come back in order to stop the time disease. All right, let's let's talk about this. First off, I'm not the only person that said that John Locke was ultimately right. That's something that you have said that many Lost fans have said many times. But I think to Abraham's point, I'm, I'm meaning right in a different way. I'm meaning right specifically from the perspective of Jack who in this conversation is saying, this place is not where miracles happen. This is just a stupid island. I'm going to leave this stupid island behind. It's not important to me. It's not important to you. It's not important it's to not any Portland. of us. Yeah, it's, it's not in Portland, uh, even though apparently it You're might just be a little... town and the yolk's on you. And then he pushes him down a well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> go, I, to, I, go to well. Go to well. Uh, I, I think that while I agree that Locke's actions are not necessarily, you know, he's not necessarily right about oh, uh, these people, we have to stay behind because these people are not going to come to rescue us because that ends up not really coming to pass. They end up incidentally being rescued because of these people. Locke is ultimately right because he explains to Jack why the island is important. That's why he's right. And that becomes abundantly clear in the stakes of season six that, yes, are brought on a bit by John Locke, who ends up, you know, leaving the island, getting killed, and then having his body inhabited by the man in black who's going to cause this big endgame level event. But I think specifically the way Jack's character arc ends, he specifically believes that Locke is right. That's what I mean. That it's not necessarily that Locke was right about each and everything that he's saying, but Jack is going to believe Locke is right by the end of this to the point where that's like the final thing he's going to say to the facsimile of John Locke in his life on the rocks. But in this moment, he believes he's completely wrong. Mm, yeah. Um, 
it's fascinating to me. I mean, I think that there, I think you have salient points. I think Abraham has salient points. Yeah, and I, I think Abraham has salient points as well. Like I'm, I'm not saying he's right about everything. I just think that he's, he's right in a different way. Yeah. 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 No, I hear that. I hear that for sure. Um, from Ben, uh, Ben, speaking of Ben, Ben says, I provided feedback after through the looking glass about how the episode deliberately points at Ben being in the coffin. And in season four, we get Jeremy Ben thumb and we see Ben get off the island. I was so convinced it was Ben on the first watch that in the closing moments of there's no place like home when Jack is looking at the coffin. It's a surprise that Ben walks in. Uh, I think it really improves the shock of the lock reveal. I think that that's a, a great point. Um, oh, but unless ben. it's Ben's ghost and he's talking to Jack <laughs> like Charlie's ghost was talking yeah. to her, like it's Ben from the future. Yeah, that could be it. Um, some behind the scenes type stuff. Uh, the frozen donkey wheel, of course, um, in the vein of the bagel, the holla and the rattlesnake in the mailbox. Damon and Carlton made a big deal of their code name for the redacted scene that was not in most of the cast's script. Um, this was all the stuff around the moving of the island and they codenamed it the frozen donkey wheel. Which was hilarious because it literally was just uh, a frozen donkey wheel, ultimately. Yeah, there's no metaphor. The box is not a metaphor in this case. It's literally a box. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the lie a little bit more. Um, this is uh, Carlton Cuse and David Lindelof in audio commentary on There's No Place Like Home talking about um, everything that happened during the one week later, uh, the, the lie, all of this. Uh, Carlton says... Here's how you break it down. Oceanic 815 in reality crashed somewhere like a thousand miles from Fiji. And yet the wreckage of 815, the fake one that was planted on the bottom of the ocean, was an an entirely different part over by Indonesia. And that's a long way to go. So they've been driving from where the island was located. They've been driving west about 3,000 miles during the course of this week. Lindelof says, now remember this week that they spent on the freighter is where they cook up the lie. What's cool about the Oceanic Six lie is they basically piggybacked on whoever put the wreckage of the plane there. Whether it's Ben or Widmore is yet to be determined, dot, 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 hmm. They're saying someone made it look like we're dead, and what we're going to do is we're going to co-opt their lie, be a part of it, and say we were actually on that plane and got out of it before it sunk to the ocean floor. That protects them from whoever is the perpetrator of that lie, because to expose their lie would be to expose the lie that the plane is there in the first place. Oh, did we just get an answer as to why they had to lie? I mean, I think that that is certainly the writer's answer, whether or not that holds uh, holds up. Holds uh, water, if you will. Yeah, whether or not that's like legit or that's on shaky ground, uh, whether that's on Eggtown <laughs> uh, is up to you, I think. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a good it's a good point about how it is. It would be a little odd where right, if, if it's like, well, we found your plane in the bottom of the ocean floor. Actually, that's not our plane. Our plane crashed somewhere else. And just people's minds would be absolutely blown. Uh, I know that, you know, we, we got you mentioned Brownlee's point. I know that Abraham also basically wrote in about how, you know, it's probably BS that outsiders would discover, quote, wh- where miracles would happen. There's not really that initial Ben purported claim of, oh, people will come and exploit the island. They'll use it for a tourist trap uh, that, you know, it, it just it just feels a little excessive. Maybe here it's just this, this opportunity of, well, if someone else is lying, why not just hop on board that and try to take the, the simplest route using Occam's razor rather than going through this whole entire convoluted truth that is going to then bring up almost two truths at the same time. Yeah. Two truths and many lies. Two truths and, and many lies. While we're on the subject of the Oceanic Six, uh, it is the great hatchling Connor Howe who wrote in to inform us, Mike, that apparently there is a band named the Oceanic Six. 
that made yeah. songs about Lost. Yeah, this is wild to me. I don't think I've ever heard of a Lost theme band before. And this is not like Wandoff, Lindelof, Weird Al type of stuff. This is straight up original music based around Lost. And it seems to be like legitimate music. You know, it's not for written. Are you saying sort of the Lindelofs and the Wandoffs, it's not legitimate music because I'm going to get upset. No, it's legitimate music. You're in Eggtown. <laughs> no, listen, I'm not going Go to, to shell, shell anytime soon. Go I don't know why I'm looking behind me to check, make sure there are no shells. It's legitimate music. I would just say it's not, uh, it's in- incredibly creative, but not original. Uh, it's original in its execution, mm. but I would not necessarily say You're original in, in, hey, let me put pen to paper, write some notes, write some rhythms, write some backing tracks. And that's what we get here with the Oceanic 6. I've never heard about this band before, Josh. I don't know if you have. No, but thank, no. Thank the you only to Oceanic, The only Oceanic 6 I know are uh, Jack and Kate and Hurley and Saeed and Son and Aaron. Yeah, so evidently, I'm assuming these are not the people in the band. I can't imagine what instrument Aaron is going to play specifically, but this Electric seems to guitar. be... guitar, he shreds. Uh, according to Connor, there aren't even six people in this band. I think there's three. He's a three. sleeper hit. He's sleeper hit. Um, okay. Every, every member of the, the three members of the Oceanic Six, they all count twice. <laughs> I suppose so. Maybe they just like... Maybe they switch they personalities two instruments each. They each play two instruments. Oh, um, I like that. We have a couple of tracks that we can like... What do we want to do? We want to play with the first few seconds of each one? Yeah, so I have four tracks here. I asked Connor to send me, in pure Lost fashion, send me the top four tracks that you think we should listen to Mm -hmm. we'll do sort of like the itunes 30 seconds to one minute version and then give our thoughts so yeah this is a first on down the hash this is like well we did this with the lindelofs it's a blind listen to the music of the oceanic six the band based on lost okay so let's listen the first track is called the crash this should be relatively straightforward all right It's very cheery. It's a very cheery version of Oceanic 815's Crash. I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't anywhere close to that. Yeah, it was like a super happy, like, sort of like, uh, like, 90s beach vibe. It Uh, sounds like the music that plays when you cut to the B-roll of a high school in one of those essential 90s films, like Can't Hardly Wait. Yeah. But it's about a plane crash. Yeah, it was a little dark. It was like a bubbly dark, you know. It was a, it was a little dark and bubbly. Um, let's listen to one more. I think we could do one more rather than go through all four because they're, they're long. I don't think we need to do all four. Uh, let me 
let's do a gut check. There, there are three others that we've pulled that we could listen to. I know what my pick is. Uh, the the next one we could listen to is "Will You Be My Constant," <laughs> which is hilarious. The one after that is "Monster Eats the Pilot," which is a classic uh, Giacchino Charlie track. Uh, I think the one that I want to hear is in honor of the character who just got bungled so hard here in season four of Lost. It's called "They Took My Son." Yeah, I have a feeling that "Monster Eats the Pilot" would be very similar, despite the even darker tone. Of the crash, it would be like, Monster ate the pilot, look out in the trees. Just like something very upbeat and happy. And Will You Be My Constant sounds like maybe like a slower, you know, type of crooning ballad about asking someone to be their constant. I just so, don't know, like, what will they took my son be like? So I do kind of just want to yeah, know. Let's let's check it out. Let's see. All right. So this is They Took My Son. They Took the My o- Son. By the Oceanic Six. Maybe Harold Perrineau guest vocals on this. to be the uh the muted tom friendly voice <laughs> oh my god yeah the thing is we gotta take you oh wow that's really I love good that. i love that i mean i don't know again i don't know what i expected i don't think i expected it to be from the first person perspective of <laughs> michael <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah michael sounds uh is michael just singing all of this because it sounds like the same guy who's in the seat in the crash Ooh, is Michael like the narrator? And he's just all he can think is in musical thoughts. That's just how perverted his mind has been yeah, by everything it's on the really island. Perverted. Uh, well, I'm really glad that we spent some time with the Oceanic Six, the band. Um, uh, maybe by the end of this, uh, for the outro, Mike, we can play either Will You Be My Constant or Monster Eats the Pilot. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely worth it. I don't know how you can follow up They Took My Son, but I'm incredible. Well, should we, by should this we band. just should we just check out Will You Be My Constant right now? Yeah, real and then, quick? then we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, end with yeah, Monster yeah. Eats the great, Pilot. Great, great, right. great. So yeah, this let's, is do you, let's do it. Let's get let's get romantic. Everybody turn down the lights. Oh my it's gosh. Time to, time to listen to Full will Bloom. You, will you be my constant? Oh no. <laughs> Around the world, show you just how much I care. Why would you ever leave my side? I had to 
sort of like Belle and Sebastian-ish like that yeah, was but, but it combined with like Summer Nights from Greece yeah. right? where there's like there's a Penny part and there's a Desmond part um, I loved the conversion of the uh, the computer the of the hatch noise into like a little a little electronica some EDM yeah, and a little bit of uh, EDM for the EMPs, and then a little bit of a uh, mashup <laughs> with, make, with make your own kind of music in the yeah, beginning there too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm really am digging the Oceanic Six. Yeah, I'm I'm here for the Oceanic Six for sure. I'm pretty psyched that we have Monster Eats the Pilot left over for the for the outro. I, you know what? Maybe I don't know. We're, we're gonna keep dealing with the Oceanic Six in season five. Maybe maybe we'll find out more ways to because this is not the only four tracks from that album. Maybe we'll oh find a God. way to, to disperse it throughout. Four. All right. Well, we've put this off long enough mike it's time to get into like the really interesting difficult thing that is going on here on down the hatch right now and that is the matter of the season four mvp lvp section uh the 23 points every week we give points out to different characters for excellence and the opposite of that uh, and this season, we, because of a very exceptional performance towards the end of the season, specifically in the finale, we found ourselves in this position where one character had been like really breaking away with the MVP points. Uh, it seemed like he would be difficult to beat, not impossible to beat because there's fewer episodes this season. And also, I think, uh, to, uh, to Snorri Jonsson's point, uh, this season has some of the most, uh, uh, positive character development in a single season uh, mm. that Jack and Sawyer, Hurley, Ben, Julia, Kate, Son, Jin, they all go through big growth arcs. I think you see it in the MVP LVPs that we, we you know, there wasn't like one necessarily like uh, like Saeed level or, you know, uh, whoever. Like there wasn't like Mr. Echo in season two. Um, where we wound up at the end of uh, the finale was a tie between Sawyer, who had that really exceptional finale, and then Frank Lapidus, who had been accumulating points. And this has been controversial, divisive. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what we had said, Mike, was we would leave the final uh, verdict to the listeners of Down the Hatch to write in and send us your MVP, LVP uh, pick for is it Frank or is it Sawyer, who is the MVP of season four? We had people write in. Uh, we had some comments first. This is from Jesse Camacho, who says, this is tough. 
Sawyer jumps from the helicopter and secures the lives of so many people. It's four seasons worth of character buildup. We finally see his character make this massive leap to save the woman he currently loves and his best friends. It's so incredible. It's one of the best moments of the whole series. But without Frank, none of it happens. He's the only one able to fly the chopper. He stands up to Kimi. And he's able to decipher that the people on the island are far better and more worthy to risk his skin for. He also does all this while being an awesome, badass, funny new addition to the show. Um, Ooh, and, that, and that's something big coming from Jesse Camacho, world number one skater fan. Loves uh, loves the skate, uh, Jesse does. Uh, we had this from Andre the Meat Man, uh, who was like, I'm still here, said Andre. And Andre's hmm. like, what are you guys doing with all these points for Frank Lapidus? Uh, you give him an MVP point for showing up, making a play to Kimi, who sees through the ruse immediately. Uh, and the doctor dies and the captain dies. And you say he's the MVP. Uh, I get that you guys like him. He's fine. But where's your objectivity? Respect the game. Regain your integrity. Outrageous, says Ander, uh towards our uh, our Frank stuff. So I think it's pretty clear where Frank's vote, uh, where Ander's vote is going to go. So let me, uh, uh, Jeff Probst style, Tribal Council style, let me read the votes. Ooh. That we got uh, for Sawyer and Frank for the MVPs, Mike. As it currently stands, they are both uh, six six apiece uh, in terms of like the actual thing. So this is going to end with one has seven points and one has six. Yes, uh, is where we're going to leave this. Um, okay, first vote, Sawyer. Second vote, it's Frank. People are going to tune in at this point and think that we're in the middle of a Brent Steele in the it's middle the third, of the Speedback podcast. The, the third vote. I'm not going to do this. There's 10 votes for Sawyer and 10 votes for Frank. Mike, we're still Ugh. tied. We're we still tied. Are we drawing black rocks? We're, we're, we're dead John locked. We, are, we, we remain tied. We had 20 people cast their MVP <laughs> votes and it's 10 and 10. It's Sawyer and this it's is- Frank ridiculous um absolutely and what's, ridiculous what's, what's great too is even behind the scenes uh our behind the scenes team is divided uh fitzy votes for sawyer ben martell votes for frank <laughs> and earlier today ben martell i'm doxing ben i'm doing this uh ben ben reaches out and goes all right so we're still tied um if we're still tied going into the podcast can i uh from behind the curtain make a ruling here it's like well did you vote he goes, yeah. I'm like, yeah, Ben. You don't. You can't vote twice. That's you not know? a finger. That's not a finger on the scale. That's the whole damn hand yeah, you on can't, the scale. You can't do that. He wanted to make the executive call from behind the curtain, but he voted, and so no, you can't make the executive decision there. Um, so I think, Mike, you and I have not talked this through. This is not a bit dragon fruit. This is not a bit. You and I have not talked through what you and I would do. In the event of a tie, and I don't think you and I like said where we would land in like a final vote. So I wonder if we did like a three, two, one name, and on the name we both say the name of who we would give it to, and if we are unanimous, then that person gets it, and if not, then I guess we got to call up Yunjin Kim, who is uh, the the who has five points and is currently in third place and oh, has yeah, to the break Laurel. the tie, unless unless we give it to Sun, <laughs> if if we can't come up with a consensus here. 
well, so here's here's my don't don't uh, tip don't tip who you would be backing right now well, if you're about well, to because, well, well because I'm gonna tip my hand a little bit no because, because I don't want to know if we're gonna do this well my vote is for both <sighs> my vote my, is for both that's so lame is it's lame but I feel like we had our chance to break the tie it didn't happen. The listeners had their chance to break the tie. No, we didn't. didn't we happen. didn't have our chance to break we the had tie. The ability, no, we had the ability to give points. And so we purposely gave points to put Sawyer and Frank in a but deadlock now we're, situation. Now we're, ti- now we're tie breaking the hatchlings tie. It's a new situation. Now we have to choose one. You have to choose a name. We have to choose a name. Three to one name. And whoever you choose... It's a it's a it's a tough choice. It's the end of the good son. Uh, you're on the helicopter. We're we're losing. We're losing. Oh, can I choose Macaulay Culkin. We're losing. We're losing. Uh, we're we're losing gas. We're gonna crash. Somebody's gotta jump. I'd feel a lot better if I lost a couple hundred pounds. I say that every day. Uh, we we need to make a choice, Mike. Okay. We All need right. to throw someone. Onto the helicopter is what we're doing. So on the three, two, one name, we are deciding. And if we're in, if we say the same name, then that's who it is. But if we say a different name, if we don't have the same name, then we're just exactly where we are. And uh, then I think we have like a co-share. Yeah. So let me just be let me just be put out there that I did put the co-share option out before him, but I'm ready to do the three, two, one. Name. Well, I'm, I'm that, ready to go I, into this. I, with I, you. I think I think we should make a choice. And if we if we are not in agreement on the choice, then it's a co-share. But like, right. let's try and give it to one person. All right, let's 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 attempt to do it because that's what we've been doing so far. Let's let's try to keep things consistent here. So we're doing three, two, one, name. Yeah, and then you you say the name of the person on the name. You don't actually say the word name. You say on on three, two, one. You say uh, you're in egg town. <laughs> <laughs> Go to shell. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to be the person who does the three, two, yeah, one? Yeah, I guess oh, wait, a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I do the count, the three, two, one countdown as well before we sync up recording. So I think it yes. makes sense given my role in our uh, pushing the buttons of it all. All right, so it's three, two, one, name. Here we That's go. That's it. Yes. Three, two, one. Frank. Sawyer. Yep. So oh. we're <laughs> they're co-sharing it. They're co-sharing it. They're co-sharing it. They're co-sharing it. All right. So Frank and Sawyer. You guys are going to, you know what? And I love it. Uh, they are co MVPs for season four. I, and I think it makes sense because like Mike, one of them is like exceptional, uh, for, uh, like the entirety of his time in, in season four. But then one person is just like such like a, a next level. This person is the hero of the episode mm-hmm. type of role. That Sawyer deserves the, and I think like the the arc from where he begins the show to this moment, uh, I I think it's it's certainly warranted. Like if it's the if it's the binary choice between Sawyer or Frank, for me, I do have to go Sawyer. Yeah, I I personally went with Frank personally because I feel like he sort of embodies season four to me like i feel like the first three seasons each one of the people that we picked so far sort of embodies those seasons and i wanted to continue the trend with this character is introduced in season four much like echo was introduced in season two when juliet was introduced in season three and he doesn't play as pivotal a role in the emotional arc of everything but i think he's a very solid character there is two of some points that are made a lot of plots that don't exist without him he is very much responsible for people getting to and from the island 
I also admittedly did a little bit of head gaming and figured that you might say Sawyer, so I wanted oh, to make. Uh, I, I thought maybe if he says it, we make the co-share happen. So, oh, I'm, but, I, but I have reasons for choosing Frank as well. It's not completely unsubstantiated. You're so just I'm, doing it for the. Oh man. But I think you make a great point in that I think these two guys represent something completely two very different sides of characterizations in season four. We get the new people that completely dropped into the show. They're going to play a pretty pivotal role moving forward. And then you have our old fashions who end up showing really new shades both on and off island. And I think, again, season four is really weird. Let's get really weird here, too. And for the first time, award two co-MVPs. Yeah. And uh, so Frank and Sawyer, who who very barely interact on the show, are going to have to, like, uh, co-own the award, which I think is appropriately awkward. Uh, they are going to walk away from season four, both of them with six MVP points apiece. There's just one MVP point higher than Sun, uh, who is in uh, second place, and Saeed in third with fourth but now we've got like the overall tally we've got the overall yeah. totals and our top three is i believe still the top three that it was last season and if anything um the person who is who is at the front of the pack um on down the hatch in the mvp category really remains that way saeed Jarrah with 29 mvp points overall is ahead of our second place MVP, who is Hurley with 23, that unlucky number. Um, interestingly, uh, the next is is Mr. Echo with 16. Uh, <laughs> R.I.P. His, his, his presence still exists there on the podium. Yeah, not a huge season for Hurley MVP-wise. Again, we had much fewer episodes, uh, but he only got two points, which I think is, is surprising. Hurley is usually a favorite for these things, but I would say, I think in comparison to some of these other characters that we talked about, uh, not a lot of huge Hurley moments in season four. No. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything major with the uh, the LVPs overall. I know, I know that Charles Widmore, so Charles Widmore received a, a big, what, negative seven, I think, overall, which which made him fall very swiftly, like the uh, the flight that he dumped off into the into the ocean in Indonesia. He is now second from the bottom. Of course, Anthony Cooper still holding up the rear with negative 18, but Charles Widmore falls below the late Danny Pickett. He's currently at negative 11, and I'm going to assume he's going to keep falling, Josh. Uh, I think it's possible uh yeah i think it'll be hard for him to trend upward and also we're gonna have a bunch of like uh timey wimey whitmore uh yeah, Charles Winmore. um one thing that is notable is john locke is really down there as well john locke is like by far and away uh at the bottom of the main characters he's got negative oceanic six points that puts him on the same scale as the likes of jason mccormick and heroin <laughs> There was a very fantastic runner in the DTH Discord channel where in in lieu of all this voting about Sawyer versus Frank, Ben Martell also pointed out, hey, fun fact, Locke's tied with heroin. And the Hatchlings then proceeded to vote between which is worse, John Locke or heroin. I cannot wait for the day when I get to interview Terry O'Quinn and say, hey, fun fact, we do a Lost podcast and our listeners were trying to debate whether or not John Locke was worse than heroin. The I wouldn't bring it up. I wouldn't bring it up. I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't bring it up. Uh, all right. As we start to move into this is the beginning of the end of the podcast, Mike. Uh, we're about to talk about the the episode rankings. But before we do. 
One of the things we really love to do here is, Mike, you love to divide a season of Lost into like different eras within the season. Season four is so short. How do you do this uh, for season four? It's really tough. So I really did not do much division. Uh, I only ended up doing three eras, but these these ones I usually do like five to six. I think I did six with season one and five with seasons two or three. But because there are just so few episodes, I mean, if you count the finale all as one episode, there's only 12. I decided to divide it into three parts. These are not as neat as maybe previous seasons, partially, I think, due to just the the the, the messiness with the writer strike. But here's what I've got, and I'll, we'll see what your thoughts are, Josh. So... The first seven episodes, the first half of season four, the beginning of the end to GE on, I have all lumped together and I call it the Oceanic Six Revealed. Because I would say uh, much too of chagrin, uh, you know, or, or uh, you know, instead of an alternative, we get the reveals of the Oceanic Six through all these flash forwards. You have some other stuff thrown in there, including uh, the flashbacks and Confirmed Dead and the other woman. But for the most part, the show is really narratively eking out who does and doesn't make it off the island. And that feels distinctly separate to me from what's to come. Because once that mystery is solved, we move on to really some of the more propulsive action. The second section I have is basically the rest of the season sans the finale. It's meet Kevin Johnson through cabin fever. And I call it meet the Mercs. Because Meet Kevin Johnson is when, of course, at the end of the episode, they kill off Danielle Rousseau and Carl, which leads into Alex dying and Kimi and the Merc sort of storming the island and really pushing things into the endgame, including Locke, Ben and Hurley going to the cabin and finding out that they need to move the island. This feels distinctly different to me, even though the constant focused on the freighter, this feels more like we're getting to know about more stuff about off island freighter Widmore based things than we did before and now the true danger of what charles winmore is bringing to the island is coming to the forefront and so it leaves there's no place like home which i do feel like deserves its own era as well because it's three hours of freaking television and i just call it moving on both physically in the form of the island emotionally in the oceanic six you know going to leave the island or the island leaving them and then them proceeding to sort of compartmentalize their lives three years on uh, we do sort of kill off the Merc problem, but again, that's done sort of so interspersed with all the other stuff going on. Yeah. And there's no place like home that the finale feels distinctly different to me. So three really clean cut eras. Episode one to episode seven is the oceanic six revealed episode eight to episode 11 is meet the Mercs and the whole finale is moving on. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I love that. I think that it, it's uh, a very neat three act structure to season four. Uh, I fully, I fully agree with that. And I think like that meet Kevin Johnson spot, uh, does feel like, um, that connects really quickly to shape of things to come. I'd love to just removed <laughs> entirely, but that's not really an option. Um, okay. Well, with the eras set, Mike, let us settle the rankings. Uh, let us settle the, uh, the placement of the episodes of season four of which we have determined there are 12 because we are counting the entirety of the finale as one single three-part episode, uh, which I know is divisive because I do believe people definitely like submitted their scores mm-hmm. based on uh, viewing like the three different parts, which I don't think a lot of people did for Exodus necessarily, but um, 
it's right, interesting. But, but, we, but we also did two separate podcasts for for that, and so they, they feel like, oh, for doing a rating maybe, per podcast. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. also I also do believe. I know it's like, oh, we're not going five hours on Exodus or on a, on. There's no place like home. I do believe if you combine the run times of both the podcasts we did on There's really No long. Place Like Home, I think it might actually be more than when we did on Exodus. More. Uh, yeah, I think that that's likely, uh, but it was probably easier for our brains to do it in the way <laughs> that we for, did it. Up for debate. I don't think anything's easy for our brains nowadays. Not anymore. All right, so let's do the countdown of the uh, episode rankings of season four. The worst episode of season four, according to Down the Hatch, is The Other Woman. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, with two point four six two. Uh, in eleventh place, Eggtown. You're in Eggtown, baby. Yolks on you. Uh, Go to the second worst episode of season four. Um, then it's Meet Kevin Johnson. Uh, in my estimation, if it were entirely up to my devices, Eggtown and Meet Kevin Johnson would be flipped. Uh, then it's something nice back home. Jack's appendix. Then it's The Economist. Then it's Gion. Then it's confirmed dead. Then it's cabin fever. Uh, and then for, from you and I both, a string of... Uh, oh, not for the beginning of the end. You didn't give a 4.2. But the beginning right. of the end is in fourth. And then the final three, top three, you and I gave 4.2s to all three of these episodes. The Shape of Things to Come, There's No Place Like Home, and The Constant is King. The Constant is at the top of the list. Um, when I look at this list of episodes of season four... There really are only like three episodes that I think are like either bad, like in the scale of lost at least, uh, or just fine. Um, and then everything else is either good or transcendent. Um, that is a strong argument in favor of season four of lost. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing where it is much more lean, obviously, in the number of episodes, but I feel like that almost gives lost the benefit, like you talked about earlier, an argument of, well, because they don't have as many episodes to make bad episodes necessarily, don't necessarily have the time to do that. It really packs everything in where I know that something nice back home is going to wind up in our bottom four. But I mean, you look at those post meet Kevin Johnson, those post writer strike episodes, and except for something nice back home, they're all in the top five. Yeah, uh, that really says something about the later stretch. And even in the beginning, right, confirmed dead and the beginning of the end are numbers four and six. Here, so I think I think all of, almost all these episodes are really solid. I think Meet Kevin Johnson and Eggtown I talked about on the podcast, so I think there are benefits to those episodes in the realm of some of the other episodes, like what Kate did, for example. I find them very comparable to some of those mid-level season two, season three episodes. And the other woman is a bottom five episode for me, but it doesn't commit as many abhorrent sins. As things like Fire Plus Water, Stranger in a Strange Land, Further Instructions did for yeah. me. So even like the worst episode of season four is still not the doldrums for me. I think that's that's a sign to me of a fairly strong season overall. It's a very top heavy season. It's a really impressive season in terms of what it accomplishes with the amount that it has to accomplish everything in um, the pivots that they have to make. There are like very real logistical things that they have to they have to untangle. And I do think that they do it relatively deftly. I think it commits a couple of sins um, that are not entirely its fault, uh, but are potentially still somewhat their fault in terms of um, not thinking things through all the way. 
um, that are hard for me to get past. So like the lows of season four are really rather low for me. Uh, meet Kevin Johnson and the other women are, are pretty significant low points uh, for the show for me. Um, but the highs are just exquisite. Uh, the constant is exquisite. The finale is exquisite. The shape of things to come is just excellent. Uh, so I am, I'm happy uh, with the season four experience. It really was a lot like a rocket. It, like even like the way that we, we recorded this one, um, mm-hmm. it just, it just felt strange, felt different. Um, I'm, I'm not mad about that. I think a testament to this season is that we now have three episodes of season four in our official uh, top ten for all of the episodes. I'll just read the top ten real quick. Uh, we'll put the full list in uh, the show notes. Um, but that top ten looks like the brig from season three is number ten. Uh, then it's the shape of things to come in ninth. Then uh, ben Ben defeats Locke once more. And then it's the man behind the curtain in eighth. So you got those two Ben specials next to each other. Uh, it's a tie for sixth between the pilot and flashes before your eyes. Um, your top five baby is Walkabout, Exodus, There's No Place Like Home, and As It Stands, uh, and I don't, uh, because we're locking up the scores, it's not yeah. going to be... Uh, I think it's permanent. It is It is a, a tie for first <laughs> place between Through the Looking Glass and The Constant. Wow, they're um, a real Frank and Sawyer situation, I see. So I don't know. Do we need to do this again, Mike? Do we need to like have everybody write in and tell us what's the best episode of Lost? Is it the constant or oh, through the God. looking glass? I don't know. Do we go to we go into three decimal places? Do we go to four? I on mean, this one? I don't know. Let's take the let's take a look. Does that how much of a difference does does that make? Uh, All right. Know, let's yeah. Let's do some math here. Let's do. Uh, let's, we'll do some quick maths. Okay. So the average for through the looking glass is. Four point one nine seven three. The average for the constant is four point one nine seven one. All right, so we've got a winner. It's going to be through the looking glass. Through the looking glass is going to be the top episode on down the hatch by a hair. By uh, by a hair, a finely coiffed hair on Desmond David. That's four point one nine seven one. To four point one nine seven three. Okay, you know what? You heard it here first. The constant, a very good episode. It's just not the best, folks. Yeah, but I mean, uh, three <laughs> episodes in the top ten yeah. episodes of Lost so far from a truncated season of only twelve episodes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's pretty damn remarkable. I will say, I'm a little saddened that it's by a point zero zero one difference. I'm a little saddened that there's no place like home is above Exodus personally i but again, i am as well i am as well it's, it's, but i can live negligible with it. so I'll live but i think with it. I'll i'm, I'm live very with happy with season four in general i mean i think that i think about like uh seven or eight episodes of season four are in the top 50 episodes only, of Lost. only one is in the bottom 10 and it's the other woman and then uh in 69 uh you're in Eggtown, baby nice. the, the yolks on you nice uh and then uh abandoned and then meet kevin johnson so like that's where it starts to show up again um, but that is, I mean, we're going to get season six episodes that are going to populate this area. I don't expect we're going to get, se- this is the thing about season five is we're starting to like look towards season five. Mm. I think that season five, there may not be a ton that cracks, uh, too high into like, 
I don't know that there will be a top 10 episode from season mm, five in here. I, I think, yeah, I think, I, may, I mean, you could argue the incident. Um, I think you could be- argue the incident. I think you can argue the variable. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be, I'm not going to be blown away, shocked, uh, shocked, not shot <laughs> if, uh, if they don't make it through. Uh, I think it is. I think uh, it's it's possible that they'll be outside of the top ten. I think it's possible that they'll be inside the top ten. I think the prediction for season five is that there will not be a season five episode that's in the bottom ten of Lost. I would not even be surprised if there isn't a season five episode that's in like the bottom twenty of Lost. I think season five is going to be like really, really, really solid. Is my prediction with season five to the point that the average ratings. Um, we've got these, uh, John locked as well. Season four has the highest average. Wow. Uh, you, of look ratings. You, look season four, you go season four, uh, 3.602 to 3.564 for season three to 3.548 for season one to 3.500 for season two. Wouldn't be surprised if season five is really competitive as far as its average. Mm, it's an interesting point, right? Cause yeah, they may not have the high highs, but it doesn't exactly have the low lows. I agree that um, we'll get into, I think, our overall season five thoughts. Uh, I guess we can do it now as we sort of segue into to taking on season five. It's a very consistent season overall, which is ironic considering all the zany crap that is happening during it. But I agree. I, I think maybe it's because there's no writer strike. So this is almost like a glimpse at, OK, if they had their heads on straight and were able to get through the season four the way that they wanted to, what would it be like? And as a result, it's like very... I wouldn't say straightforward, but it feels very cohesive, the the through line on season five throughout. Yeah, I don't think season five is ever going to dip below a three. Like, I don't think that there's a single episode that is going to be lower than a three. And I think that even three is is feels a little low to me, just like looking at at the episode list. Uh, like there are episodes that are going to be like sort of in the vein of like there's there's this chunk of season four for me that I think like. These are really good, strong base hits on on Lost. Like the Economist is sort of like I, I view it like that. Yeah, I think like, like G on. I, I think like that is as bad as season five gets. Is my feeling? Uh, mm, that's sort of like that's sort of like my gut feeling is like that is the bottom for me. Um, I love season five. I I don't know if I've said that before. Uh, <laughs> never in, never heard in my life. <laughs> I love this season. I think it's so great. I think it's really, really compellingly done. Um, there are holes for sure. It can be a little hokey in terms of like the this is how they got back to the island. But in terms of like how the island mythology interacts with itself and the ways in which the characters interact with each other across time and space, I think it's just really, really, really beautifully done. The stakes feel very real. It feels very dangerous. It feels very weird. Um, and the... The the underrated piece of this is because it gets such a bad rep because the final season gets a bad rep. Um, mm-hmm. But the smoke monster John Locke stuff is awesome. Um, the man in black is an awesome character in season five. Whatever comes in season six uh, is what happens in season six. But in season five, when the man in black makes his move and has taken on the likeness of, uh, of John Locke from that moment forward... Um, like dead is dead is such a cool episode when you watch that correctly. There are some things that when you watch it correctly, when you watch <laughs> knowing who that guy is, it's really, really chilling. Uh, and Terry O'Quinn is like doing a totally different performance. Um, and it's really, really fun to behold. So I'm really pumped about it. We're kind of in the end game now. 
Uh, you know, we're not quite in the final season. We still have two full seasons left to go. Um, but like we are tracking right now to be done with Lost right in time for the end of the year. Uh, so season five, moving into season five in May of 2021, I think projected to finish in August 2021, um, is no small thing, Mike Bloom. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually, it, it gels really nicely for this being a summer season, right? It feels like a tenpole blockbuster. There's action, there's big sci-fi aspects, there's big twists. So I'm really excited for season five, I think, in the way that you were excited for season four, in that I honestly don't remember too much about individual episodes of season five. I think, and that's almost, uh, I wouldn't say a consequence, but I think it's sort of an externality of it being such a cohesive through line is that, you know, the episodes almost flow into each other in a certain way, especially like those first six or seven episodes when it's the Oceanic Six off island trying to get back on the island. And especially in those first few episodes when everyone's scattered to the winds, right? Jin is back with Danielle Rousseau's group. We're going back to uh, the Flaming Arrows, and then we're going to go meet Richard Alpert, and then we're going to meet young Charles Widmore. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on that kind of blends together for me. But then it almost takes this huge turn in LaFleur when, you know, or Life and Death, you know, really the, the 316 period when they finally go back to the island. It's wild to me that they spend, you know, the first about third of the season off island and then we all of a sudden go on island. And again, this was all done in one shot. This premiered in January 2009. So it's not like uh, it's it's not like we had a clean mid season break like we did with the first three seasons or even with season four. We are going entirely one shot the entire way through. I'm really excited to revisit because I don't remember too much about some of the stuff that happened in these individual episodes. But it's a really fun season overall, especially when we get on island. I think that's I think that's when the season is its strongest, if we're being honest, is when we get into the LaFleur stuff where, yes, the groups are separated. But like you said, we get on island men in black and John Locke's body, which for my money, I don't think Locke is going to be the MVP of season five. But Terry O'Quinn might be in my mind. I think he does absolutely incredible work in season five, given what he's able to do. And then there's some really fun stuff taking into account, like this new mission of okay, let's detonate this bomb to prevent the plane crash from happening. And yes, it does end up being viewed a bit differently when you ultimately know what happens in the beginning of season six, which just sort of resets the timeline and doesn't send things off in an alternate universe like we're led to believe initially. But I think there's still a lot of really great character stuff in there. We're going to start having to, to you know, round the, the, the ponies on Juliet. This is going to be Juliet's final season, but what a season for her. So, I'm always excited to talk Lost with you, Josh, and I'm really excited for season five to reacquaint myself in a season that I am not completely familiar with the details with in, in quite some time. I'm so pumped. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really, really mega hyped. Uh, this is, you know, Jack's transformation. If you believe it happens, it starts to happen here from a-hole to hero. Uh, this is the Sawyer season, even though he just uh, got co-won uh, an MVP point. 
Uh, yeah, some, something tells me he's going to be on the podium by himself you know, at the end of season five. It's, it's certainly possible. There's a lot of people to choose from, I do think, is the point. Um, I think like it feels like an open and shut case for Sawyer. It's a strong case. He's definitely the front runner. He's got the momentum going into it. Um, will he secure the bag? Uh, I think he can. I certainly do. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of great characters. Um, it has my favorite Evangeline Lilly performance in the entire series comes up in season five. It has... Um, I think one of the single most underrated uh, Saeed episodes and certainly Saeed scenes in uh, is yeah. coming up and in season, season five. Season five, we finally, you know, we established the freighters, but they they did little stuff here and there. But now they finally get to become a part of the main cast. Right. We're going to get some like it hot and we're going to like get the variable where sorry, R.I.P. Charlotte. But these two guys are going to be really built into the narrative of the show and really become part of 815. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so there's just there's a lot going on. I for my sins, Mike, I I think that like the the like the 3 years later aesthetic of the island and like sort of like the crinkled up water bottles and like uh like beach junk that you find at the oceanic camp. Like I I think that there is something really compelling about the way that they sort of render like the islands uh a, like post-apocalyptic aesthetic uh, that I actually think is one of my favorite pieces of the final season. You start to get that here. We start right, to, especially in the incident, right when they uh, they drop by the old camp. Yeah, so I I love it. I'm so hyped up. I'm really, really, really excited. I know it's going to be a minute before we get into it. You trust me are going to if you loved the Lost RPG before, uh, you won't be disappointed with the episode that we have coming your way next week. Uh, it is totally ridiculous, utterly crazy. Of course, you can listen to it a little bit early if you sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash recaps, where you will now be able to get down the hatch episodes two days early. Uh, if that is the incentive that you need to sign up at that $5 level to get access to the patron podcast feed where you're getting a bunch of other podcasts as well uh, of shows that we are covering only in the patron feed and not in the main post show recaps feed, whether it's uh, the, the occasional sporadic wiggle bloom that Mike and I do mm-hmm. where we do ridiculous nonsense about once every four to six weeks, I think somewhere yeah. in that range. Yeah, I mean, we, we might be coming up upon that date in a little bit. We've got some ideas for round three is what we're going to be up to there. Plus so many more shows that you are able to get. Uh, but the biggest thing you're doing is you're really supporting this podcast. You're making it possible for us to do this show. I'm committed. I have committed very <laughs> deeply to, to, to bringing you the goods. So uh, if you are able to support, that's incredible. If you're not, then you're supporting us just by listening. Uh, having you along for the ride is utterly incredible. And uh, it is it is total pinch me territory, Mike, that we are this far, that we have made yeah. it to the gates of season five <laughs> on the on the wings of the hatchlings uh that have uh that have uh flown us here mike it's yeah, just absolutely I, I, incredible to me I, and this is in, in indicative in the feedback in this episode i mean thank you profusely to every single person who wrote in even if we weren't able to read your feedback even if uh we may have disagreed personally with your feedback it doesn't make it any less valuable or valid i mean this is a show that is bringing so many people together so many years later that i really i i I totally co-sign what you said josh it's a pinch me moment of that we get to not only talk about loss we've talked so much loss and that people are so passionate 
about this show that we will have a deadlock tie between Sawyer and Frank for season MVP after we determine the deadlock in the first place. I absolutely adore the hatchlings. I cannot wait to keep going down the hatch into season five with people. And if you're, you're listening to this, you know, very far in the future as well, we're happy you're here too. We'd certainly have had some people who have been writing us saying that they are catching up on the podcast, catching up uh, makes sense given the amount of content that we, we put out there, but we are eternally grateful for everything that you send to us each and every week from the bottom of our hearts, truly like the, the bottom of an electromagnetic well that is going to become the source of the incident at the end of season five. From all uh, the way are. down here in the shell, we birth back up into Eggtown. Yolks <laughs> on us. And we thank you for all of your support here on Down the Hatch. All right. So I can think of no better way, Josh, to finish mm-hmm. things off. Should we listen to the final song we have mm-hmm. in our hands from the Oceanic Six? We'll be back next week with the next episode of The Lost RPG. First time in over a year, Mike and I playing as Billy and Rodney, survivors of Oceanic 815. What kind of mischief are they getting into as we see them through the events of Season 4? Can't be good, considering how that goes in Season 4 for so many of the gawkers, or can it? We'll find out. And And then in two weeks, we will be back with the season five premiere and we will be cooking with electromagnetic gas from that point forward. With that said, Mike, let us throw it to the Oceanic Six with Monster Eats the Pilot. Iteration 1755044. Monster ate the pilot and a power heal John Law. The number's been repeated now for 16 years non-stop. Something about this island that I can't quite explain. And now the jungle's moving round and making funny noises. All that we've had since we crashed here are endless surprises. I've seen Jurassic Park enough to know I should be worried. But all that comes to mind to say is, guys, where are we? We're lost. All of us a thousand miles off course. We're lost. Second chance to try for some remorse. We're lost. In a sea of synchronicity. We're lost. The island calls us to our destiny. Whoa, whoa. Oh my goodness.